Hey guys, this is Kimber from Savannah, Georgia. So anytime the topic of cussing would come up around my grandmother, she would just roll her eyes and she would say, you know, people are so ignorant when they use certain words. They don't even know what they mean. She said, whenever in the olden days someone was caught in fornication or adultery, they would be put in the stocks with a sign on them that said, for unlawful carnal knowledge. And she said, that's all that word means. And people who use it are so dumb and they don't even know. And I'm like, it's fuck, nanny. The word is fuck. It doesn't. Have you heard the story of... And written on the wall... And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother. This they start telling you stories of the old country. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. Welcome back all of our magnanimous auditors to the show. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you, thank you for accompanying us on our weekly journey into the world of urban legends, myths, fables and tales. We are beyond pleased to have you with us today and all days. Now let me call you to your weekly introspection, your moment of self-examination, and our time to ruminate together. Are we chewing? That's masticate? That's ruminate. It's what cows do. Well, Jacob, some words can mean more than one thing. That's very true. And you know what? Sometimes you can look at the surrounding body language in order to interpret how a person might mean something. How do you think I might mean that I don't like being corrected, Jacob? No big words there. So we are unpacking our adjectives, a la Schoolhouse Rock, this week, because we have lots and lots of things that we're going to discuss, among them, and chiefly, explicit language. So you've been warned. And explicit language about language? Exactly. But back to my rumination before we go any further, I just want to tell everyone that I'm happy you're here and that you're my favorites. You're my darlings and I don't know what I'd do without you. And you're the sweetest little pepper pots that ever existed. And if all of you sweet little pepper pots want to reach out to us, you can get, go on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Just a Story Pod. You can go into iTunes, leave ratings and reviews, which we always appreciate. And you can also reach out to us on our website at justastorypod.com, where we have all the citations for the episodes, as well as other information and Samantha's fantastic artwork. Why, thank you. I quite like my artwork as well. Recently, I've had a string of fantastic illustrations that I've gotten to make for you all. And I've produced some of my favorites. You can also find a link to our Patreon page. And a Patreon page is like an NPR pledge drive in a box where everyone wishes that they could put every NPR pledge drive ever. You have to sign up for it. You have to sign up for the onslaught of become a sustaining members. You can't just be assaulted with it while you're trying to figure out what the hell is going on in North Korea. Right. We only bug you for about 40 seconds. And that's enough of that. If you want to support the show... And another way, you can go on to our merch store with links on our website where you can get t-shirts and mugs and things with designs by Samantha Dare. Are they fantastic? You made them. I know, so I can't say it. 
They're fantastic people. They're really cute. And another way you can reach out to us is the Urban Legend Hotline. Yes, you can call the Urban Legend Hotline at any time, day or night, whenever you feel like telling a scary story or passing on a joke or... Telling us about your childhood boogeyman. Ooh, that sounds spooky. But yes, you can do that by calling 512-222-3375 and leaving a voicemail. So now, Sam, back to the story at hand. The story at hand? The Oxford English Dictionary defines the word... Are you you writing a 10th grade English paper? No. Why are you defining a word with... The Oxford English Dictionary defines a word. At, what are you talking? Where are we going with this? Well, we have to define this word. Okay, define the word. The word. The word. Fuck. Fuck. I didn't know we were going to be talking about fuck. I feel like we have to say it that way every time we say it on purpose. <laughs> like your grandmother says black. <laughs> so there are a lot of word urban legends around. This is very true. And they're my some of my favorite urban legends. These are my wheelhouse and one that i know i heard growing up and i think many of you have is the origin of the word f-u-c-k fuck meaning either fornication under consent of the king or for unlawful carnal knowledge i've always heard the carnal knowledge bit see i always heard the first one funny so according to legend During the Black Death in the Middle Ages, towns were trying to control populations and their interactions. Well, they didn't really need to control the population. It's not like we were getting too many people living to a ripe old age. It's already illogical. So, since uncontaminated resources were scarce, many towns supposedly required permission for people to fuck (gasps) and have children. So, supposedly, the couple would need to get permission, royal permission... From the local you know, magistrate or whatever uh-huh. to be able to do this. And they would get a sign to hang on their door that said F-U-C-K, fornication under consent of the king. I feel like this is from Game of Thrones, not history. Well, it's hard to say where the origin of this story comes from because it's been passed along orally for so long. I know a thing or two about old sex laws. Oh, really? I do. I researched a ton of them when I, we were doing the Jersey Devil episode. Buggery. Buggery. But fornication has a very specific meaning. That's very true. And fornication does not mean consensual sex between a man and woman who are lawfully married in order to procreate. True. It is about extramarital or premarital sex. No one would give you permission to fornicate in order to produce children within your church-sanctioned union. Right, and so already there's a few fallacies in this legend. Fornication does not mean what the legend says. Right. They needed to use the dictionary. they weren't trying to limit people from having children. They were going to lose their workforce. (laughs) So the other option, the carnal knowledge one, is that adulterers, rapists, child molesters, etc., some kind of sex crime, sex fiends, were placed into the stocks with a placard Stating F-U-C-K for unlawful carnal knowledge. And see, I've heard found under carnal knowledge. As legends do. I know. This one is much more believable to me. Just on its face. The only place I heard this before is that Van Halen has an album with this title. Which is clever. Good on you, Van Halen. Wow. 
didn't think I'd be saying that sentence today. Now, they did place placards like, around people's necks. or Sometimes they branded them onto their foreheads or hands. Oh, that's fun, too. Cheeks, usually, actually, not foreheads. It's very, very true. But that was just like a letter. Well, I guess this is four letters. You could do it. If they had a big cheek. Maybe they did it on their ass cheek. Or a big forehead. True. Five head. But there's no historical evidence that F-U-C-K was used in this way. Here's why. Okay, now I'm thinking on it. I've had a second. I'm, I've been ruminating. And it actually wouldn't work because fuck was a dirty word before people were being put in stocks and branded this way. Well, it was used to mean sex for a very long time. And it became more and more like negative, I guess you could say. As time went on. More taboo. I assume, like, if I were going to guess about the etymology of the word, and I'm going to, I would guess that it's some abbreviation of the word fornication. You have well, that hard F and the hard C sound and fornication. I'm not sure if they have similar origins, because it's a very old word. Like, it's been recorded in English since the 15th century. So it's definitely not an acronym. Acronym words were not used except for one until the kind of mid-ish 20th century, such as FUBAR. Fucked up beyond all recognition. Or SNAFU. Situation now all fucked up. And they all could fuck. <laughs> right. And I think of K-Mag Yo-Yo. Kiss mask, guys. You're on your own. Which has now been replaced with K-Mag YOLO, which is obnoxious. It hasn't. Don't do did it. Did you just no, do that? No, I did that. It was Don't just, do that. No. So the Oxford English Dictionary... Oh, good. Does dated to 1503. John Ato, in his Dictionary of Word Origins, cites a proper name, probably a joke, John LaFucker. Okay. It was his porn name, no, from 1250. Now, an anonymous monk, reading through a monastery's copy of Dofisis, A Guide to Moral Conduct, felt compelled to write, Oh, the fucking abbot. <laughs> As marginalia in the text. Yay, monk. Now, we know when this was because he helpfully wrote the date on another little note he wrote, 1528. I love that fucking monk. So it is most likely of Germanic origin, with some words such as the Middle Dutch fulken, to thrust or copulate with, the Norwegian dialect fuka, to copulate, the Swedish dialect fulka, to strike, push, or copulate, and folk, meaning penis. Some people say like an Indo-European root, which is pook, to prick, which is the English origin for like compunction, expunge, etc. But most likely it is of Germanic origin. Well, I'm sad that it is not the title of a Van Halen album. All of those things you just said. Like, I wish that they had had the wherewithal to like list every word that just came out of your mouth. Like, they still could. Please do. If you're listening. If you're listening, Sam Hagar. And you are. Let's be honest. So, fuck is a funny word. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also a funny word because it has become just this all-powerful expletive. It is so true. You can use it in any which way. You can. And I would like to share with you all a fun fact that I learned in my introduction to discourse class from Lisey Oliver, who has been on Radio Lab, and you should go listen to her episode. She's amazing. She told me, and it's true as far as I know, that fuck or fucking is the only English infix. What's an infix? Well, you know what a prefix is. Yes, before a root word. You know what a suffix is. After a root word. 
So what do you think an infix is? I have no clue. It is a syllable inserted into a word. So fuck or fucking, usually fucking, can be used as an infix in almost any word. Let's hear some examples. Alla fucking bama. Thank you, Forrest Gump. What's another one? Absolutely. A fucking amazing. Interestingly, I believe it falls after the first stressed syllable. And I know none of you have ever read a rule on how to properly insert fucking into a pre-existing word, but I bet you all do it the same way. No one says amaze fucking ing <laughs> or have so, fucking salutely. So we have inborn grammar on how to curse. Exactly. Fantastic. I'd like to dedicate this episode to the reviewer that said that we curse too much. <laughs> so as this word has become universally adaptable to use in ways that we don't even use things in English. We don't do infixes. It's not a thing we do. It's also been adapted to every part of speech, basically. It can be a verb, obviously. It can be a passive verb, actually, which is funny. It can be a noun. I don't give a fuck. It can be a purely expletive utterance. It can also be an adverb. Now, you people who are listening may not remember, because I think not everyone is as old as I am, But there was an instance when Bono took the stage. At the 2003 Billboard Music Awards, Bono accepted an award and said, this is really, really fucking brilliant. And it became this huge thing. And there was actually legislation introduced to the uh, FCC to try and regulate fleeting expletives on live television. And it made sure to say that an expletive used as a noun, verb, adjective, etc., would not do. However, the legislation neglected to mention that any profanity used as an adverb should be penalized. You word nerds win again. We do. We do because, let's look at the sentence, this is really, really fucking brilliant. In that sentence, brilliant is an adjective of what this is, and therefore, fucking is an adverb, which is so great, so, so great. And that is what I know about the word fan fucking tastic. And we have been using fuck in fun, clever ways for a while. Besides just cursing out Abbots. Maybe he wasn't cursing him out. Maybe he was trying to, you know, let people know that he had a, a nun on the side. Oh, there was a, another instance where that was the case. <laughs> so in 1800, in new feats of horsemanship. Oh, well. <laughs> there included the passage well mounted on a metalled steed famed for his strength as well as speed karina and her favorite buck are pleased to have a flying fuck what did they mean it like it sounds i don't know it's they're already using that phrase in the 1800s that is that sounds like latronalia and yet it was good enough for horse and hound magazine or whatever so it's interesting to look at these words and the different types of word urban legends and etymology urban legends that float about, and a lot of them have to do with acronyms. Like I said, there really weren't acronyms used before the 20th century, but a lot of these kind of hidden knowledge urban legends have to do with that, such as golf. Tell me a lie. Gentlemen only, ladies forbidden. Really? Okay, so what's so great about this is it's, it's like antique trolling. It's like somebody being like, you know, this is a fact. And then it gets passed on. Like it's, it, it has to be presented as fact. Like not what do you think golf means or why do you think it's that way? It has to be presented by someone who knows they're lying. 
as fact. Not necessarily. You heard it from a friend who heard it from a friend who heard it in her English class. Oh. This is an urban invisible legend. Invisible authority. Yes. Invisible authority. Okay. So another one is the British word naff. Oh my God, please tell me. It drives me crazy. We listen to this thing where this is thrown around all the time and I don't know what it means. So people say it means not available for fucking. Uh-huh. But interestingly, it actually originates as a word in the 1960s gay slang language, polari, meaning language. inferior or tacky. Now I can use it. <laughs> but you know, whenever we are trying to define a word and find that true meaning of something, we go to none other than the dictionary. The dictionary, which implies there is one in the world, right? There's many dictionaries. There are many dictionaries. There are also usage guides, which would be handy when you're trying to decide whether to use a plural or singular verb. If there is more than one, it's not a concrete single item. I bet there's a definition for the word dictionary. Well, of course there is. Define dictionary. A book or electronic resource that lists the words of a language, typically in alphabetical order, and gives their meaning, or gives the equivalent words in a different language, often also providing information about pronunciation, origin, and usage. I look up love in the dictionary. Origin, early 16th century, from medieval Latin, dictionarium, which was a manual or book of words. Okay, so a dictionary, the list of words. And the thing that we most commonly go to a dictionary for nowadays, since we have spell check and autocorrect, is not spelling, but is to learn a definition. Or to win an argument. Oh, definitely. Or to win Scrabble. Definitely, definitely. But what is a definition? Define definition. A statement of the exact meaning of a word, especially in a dictionary. Late Middle English from Latin, definitio, from the verb definere, set bounds to. Like define. You can't do that. All right. So we go to the dictionary, a dictionary, to set up boundaries around words and eliminate ambiguity. That's pretty cool. But it's easy to imagine that this has always been a practice. Like, as long as people have been writing, they've been writing down what they meant by the words they were saying. But that's not the case. Even the phrase, to look up, is only a few centuries old. And Google is even more recent than that. Origin, sex in the city. (laughs) So people were not keeping these running tables of words. They were just writing down spoken words. Right. You know, I mean, you can look at something considered a great English masterwork like Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. And he didn't have anything like a dictionary. Now, he d- did draw some of his classic allusions from a thesaurus compiled by Thomas Cooper. And he had Thomas Wilson's Art of Rhetoric. But at this time, when he was writing... You know, every time you're in your English class, your teacher will like try to do that hidden knowledge thing. You'd be like, this is where the origin of this word comes from, from this play, or the origin of this phrase, or Shakespeare kind of invented this. Shakespeare coined bunches of words. And that's because there was no fixed language. It was not fixed. It was not defined. English was pretty much just... Feral. Feral. And it still is. If you ask me, English is such a mess of a language, and I love it. It's so difficult. I'm also shocked to learn that there were thesauruses before there were dictionaries. I've always thought of the thesaurus as sort of a redheaded stepchild to the dictionary, because you learn about it later. And back to this idea of like being introduced to the dictionary as a child, we are introduced to, let's, let's take a moment to focus on the words here, the dictionary, with that definite article. Right. How do you spell this? Go look it up in the dictionary. What does this mean? Go look it up in the dictionary. 
I don't know how to spell it. How am I supposed to look it up? Me, as a fifth grader. You're insufferable. <laughs> look it up. <laughs> it's presented as this like trusted authority where you can get the knowledge you need. And the idea that it's going to be up to date and authoritative is just wrapped up in that definite article. It has this great authority. And it gives people who use it a kind of a delusion of grandeur and infallibility when it comes to this reference work. I can just think of like every Scrabble fight. Ever. So when you think of a person sitting down to compile a dictionary, human being setting out on this endeavor. Prior to computers. No copy paste here. You have to imagine that they view themselves with that same kind of authority. That they think that they have that kind of gravitas. And so I'm going to use this illusion here to illustrate the point that lexographers are not meek little nerds. They are egotistical maniacs. No one wants to go out to drinks with a lexographer because they're scared they're going to correct their language. There's a definite possibility that they will. I think the modern equivalent of these old school lexographers are people like Will Shorts and his infinite crossword puzzle knowledge. I think you have to have a brain like that in order to even imagine that you're going to do this. But I introduced this concept of the egomaniac as the lexographer because they have had more feuds in the writing of various dictionaries throughout history than you can possibly imagine. They all fought all the time with very little dignity or aplomb. <laughs> Epic old school nerd fights. Who doesn't love that? No one that listens to the show doesn't love that. <laughs> and with that, let us begin the storied history of the dictionary. You think this might be boring. <laughs> no, no. As one Samuel Johnson scholar wrote, at times their debates have been little more dignified than knife fights. Oh, yes, yes. First time listeners, just, just hold on. <laughs> In 1538, the first of the Latin English dictionaries were published by Thomas Ellison, and it listed the words alphabetically. Which was game-changing. When you're starting with a clean slate, that tabula rasa just makes every idea you have a good one. So he listed words alphabetically with their Latin counterpart and provided a translation table, basically. But it is still a dictionary. Now, shortly after this, Thomas Cooper, referenced by Shakespeare, was compiling his Treasure House of the Roman and British Tongue in 1573. And a friend described his personal challenges in compiling this work. Apparently, he had a, quote, shrew of a wife. Did he tame her? No. Her name was Amy. And as other friends said, she was quite too light for his gravity. And so she became, again, quote, irreconcilably angry with him for sitting up late at night compiling his dictionary, as one is wont to do. And so when he was halfway through his work of compiling this thesaurus from scratch on paper, she had the opportunity to get into his study and took all the pains out in her lap and threw it into a fire and burnt it. Well, for all that, the good man had so great a zeal for the advancement of learning that he just began it again. Wow. Did he kill her? And Amy was never heard from again. Is this one of those books... Bound in skin. <laughs> Shrew skin. Very fine. <laughs> Exclusive. Now, the first initial attempt at what we think of as a dictionary was made in 1582. 
And this was the Mulcasters Elementary, which was an 8,000 word list with eh, no definition. So maybe not what we think of as a dictionary. But they were trying to organize the English language. Robert Mulcaster, who was born in 1530, was the headmaster at Taylor's School in London. And he was an influential force in education. He introduced physical education, music, and drama into the curriculum. He also believed that girls should be educated. Preposterous. Or at least that they should be if they wanted to. He had a reputation for conducting very orderly classes, which is impressive, considering he also had a reputation for sleeping through all of his classes. So they were very quiet classes. It's like, no one speaks. I guess he got his bluff in early. I'm not sure how this worked, but I thought that was magical. And he wanted to show that no language, be it whatsoever, is better able to utter all arguments, either with more pith or greater plainness than our English tongue is, if the English utterer be as skillful in the matter which he has to utter. So we're the best at bitching about things. Yes, So this was produced, this list, this table, was produced about a century after mass printing was introduced in England by William Caxton. And when mass printing was introduced in England, they were able to shift away from Latin, which had always been the traditional, quote, language of learning. And English had begun to really gain currency. However, there was a wide acknowledgement that if it was going to be used in formal settings and circles, it needed to be stabilized so that it could be employed with greater skill and precision as its functions increased in prestige and scale. Some words in his list are out of popular circulation. There was the word bribble brapple, which I have still not been able to find a definition for, but I can assume. There was a carpet knight, which is... I found that one. This is a knight whose exploits being restricted to a carpeted boudoir <laughs> instead of the field of battle. So a knight in name, if not in deed. Otherwise known as slang I'm now going to use. <laughs> and there was also a flindermouse. Which is a bat. Which is fabulous. I like this so much better than bat. Which is a French origin. Flindermouse, with vlinda in Dutch being like a butterfly. Butterfly mouse. Much better. Sweet. Oh, okay, now I get why it's not used. I like bats. Flindermouse man! So, Mulcaster's aims included setting down spelling rules and creating clear patterns that would help differentiate between phonetically similar words like mad and made. He also said, It were a thing very praiseworthy, in my opinion, if some well-learned and as laborious a man would gather all the words which we use in our English tongue out of all professions, as well learned as not, into one dictionary. And besides, the right writing, which is incident of the alphabet, would open unto us therein, both their natural force and their proper use. This is very interesting. I mean, and looking at his spelling is very interesting. He uses very abbreviated spelling in some cases, and then adds lots of extra S's and E's. And so to think that he is the man... Who's going to simplify this? But wait, I mean, there was no defined spelling of words. It's just impossible to imagine. But it's true. I know. So from Mulcaster, we move on to Caudry. And Caudry produced a pretty proper dictionary. It was 120 pages with 2,500 words. And it was called a table of alphabetical of hard, unusual English words. And it was published in 1604. 
and it was the first single language English dictionary ever produced. And he compiled it for, quote, the benefit and help of ladies, gentlewomen, and other unskillful persons. Well, that was nice of him. Not unskilled. Unskillful. You want to look that one up? I'm going to say the way that word ends, that little suffix there, makes it all the more insulting. But anyway, thank you. Thank you, Caudry, for your missionary work to the female population of the world. He included definitions, revolutionary, and a good portion of the words which were included were considered hard words or words that were unfamiliar to the public. Now, interestingly, he did a little creative borrowing. Half of his head words were taken from a table of difficult words, which were included in the English Schulmeister by Edmund Coote eight years earlier. So he's plagiarizing a little, but that's okay because eventually a lexicographer named John Bullocker, who wrote the English Expositor, stole many of Caudry's entries. But that's okay because eventually Caudry's son revised the original dictionary his father had written and stole entries from Bullocker. And this is just going to keep happening. Oh, and there were words spoken. I mean, they did not mince words. They merely cataloged them. (laughs) Someone characterized their back and forth stealing as like a vaudeville sketch where two pickpockets keep stealing the same wallet out of someone's back pocket. But over the next century, dictionaries did primarily focus on hard or unusual words, which were made to impress. Only the choicest of words. There were seven major dictionaries published in 17th century England. The last had 38 thousand words but none of these dictionaries attempted to kind of collect all language they weren't like scientifically cataloging everything no not a bit and at this time there were a lot of new words coming into use in english this was in part because of rich developments in literature science medicine and the arts and a renewed interest in classical language English was becoming a global language in its own right and replacing French, Spanish, and Italian for trade and treaty agreements. But there needed to be an inventory, a proper inventory of the language. By the end of the 17th century, English were very uncomfortably aware of their own backwardness in the study of their own tongue. So people see this need and people are attempting to rise to the occasion. And here we get another little dictionary feud. Grievances between Thomas Blount, who wrote Glossographia in 1656, and Edward Phillips, who wrote New World of English Words in 1658. He was capitalizing on the interest in the literal New World there. That's some good branding. He was also John Milton's nephew. Also good branding. But many of Philip's entries were lifted directly from Blount's work. And Blount was much aggrieved, and he decided to collect some of the choicest words he had in a nasty little pamphlet entitled, A World of Errors Discovered in the New World of Words. He said, Must this be suffered? A gentleman writes a book, and the book happens to be acceptable to the world and sell. A bookseller instantly employs some mercenary to jumble up another like book out of this with some alterations and additions and give it a new title. Thus it fared with my glossographia, the fruit of above twenty years' spare hours. He insisted that what Phillips had concocted here was basically solely based on his work. And he also insisted that where Phillips had written new material, 
He had diminished the quality of the book. Crap. And the quote, Sir, your book is both good and original, but the parts that are good are not original, and the parts that are original are not good, comes to mind. Burn. That is a sick burn. So there's kind of the common misconception that Samuel Johnson wrote the first English dictionary. And of course, this isn't true. It was the 664th dictionary. If you narrow the scope to only include monolingual English dictionaries, it's the 21st. But it was the standard for over a century. Now, he was responding to the call from great English writers like Alexander Pope, Daniel Defoe, John Dryden, and Jonathan Swift to fix the English language. Oh, just can you get on that, please? Like, I think Jared Kushner's got that in his portfolio as well. But, but like fix means like to, to set it. Oh, to stabilize. Oh, you were using another definition. Look it up. I'll look it up. You were probably using a third definition there. Now, our friend Jonathan Swift of baby eating fame. Soylent Green is people. Wait, not the same thing. No, it's okay. Charlton Heston. Got it. Wrote to the Earl of Oxford to demand that a set of rules and spellings be put in place. He was outraged that words like bamboozled, uppish, and couldn't were being used in written language. He demanded that the same amount of scholarly activity be used as was for this all newfangled science thing going on. I like it. One writer said, We have neither grammar nor dictionary, neither chart nor compass to guide us through the wide sea of words. And so this is referencing something called the Board of Longitude that was in place at the time where they offered a large cash prize to anyone that could get a clock working that was reliable at sea so that the English captains could use it to figure out where they were on the high seas. Again, not a small order. No, it wasn't. There's a great book on it called Longitude. Pause, go read it. If you are a huge nonfiction science nerd like me, go read it. So he wanted a language clock. He wanted it to be taken as seriously. And it should be. People like him felt that by the 17th century, the English language was fucking perfect. And it could only either remain static or deteriorate from then on. Oh, okay. So we've got those fears again. That's a fear that comes along with every generation. Back in the good old days, William Sapphire had that same fear. Now, the man up for the task was Samuel Johnson. As many of these guys are, he was a school teacher. And a writer. And he was kind of broke. And a writer. And so they offered him 1,500 guineas to work on it. That's a lot of guineas. Half up front. Sure. Sure. I'll define words. And so I'll he, define the shit out of those words. Right. And so he set about reading and listing all of the words he came across. And of course, use other dictionaries as starting points. I mean, yeah. they are reference books. Right. So they reference them. Right. Fair use. Now, halfway through the six-year task, he realized that fixing the language was impossible. As one of his predecessors, Benjamin Martin, said, it will always be an immutable and fluctuating state. And what is deemed polite and elegant in one age may be accounted uncouth and barbarous in another. And so he knew the odds were against him when working on this, saying, every other author may aspire to praise. The lexographer can only hope to escape reproach. And the usual lot of the dictionary writer is to be disgraced by miscarriage or punished for neglect. He knew that his book would contain, quote, a few wild blunders and risable absurdities. 
which would for a time furnish folly with laughter and harden ignorance and contempt. So he felt that the epitome of writing in the English language was Shakespeare, Bacon, and Edmund Spencer. So he used that 150-year time span to read all of those books and write down all of the words. He did not use 150 years. He used the, the time in which those writers were working. Right. Okay, got it. And you know, threw a few Chaucer words in there for fun. Because everyone knows that Chaucer is so readable. Hey, I had to memorize a huge chunk of that in Middle English in high school. I know. I've heard. <laughs> Don't do it. I still know some of it. He used like inkhorn words. Which are those hard words that we were talking about earlier. Hard and choice. <laughs> Choicest. But he also included some more practical words, too, which was a little different than people had been doing. It seems of no great use, he said, to set down the words horse, dog, cat, willow, alder, daisy, rose, and a thousand others, of which it'll be hard to give an explanation not more obscure than the word itself. Yet it is to be considered that if the names of animals be inserted, we must admit those which are more known, as well as those which with which we are, by accident, less acquainted. And if they are all rejected, how will the readers be relieved from difficulties produced by allusions to the crocodile, the chameleon, the eschunamon, and the hyena? Do you know what an eschunamon is? <laughs> Let's look it up. It is a crocodile-killing mongoose. That is so badass. Right? Aren't you glad you know that? Wasn't he right? So he felt if we're going to include that, we've got to include cat too. I mean, he knew that few people would need a defined cat, but he reasoned, It's rather to be wished that many readers should find more than they expect, than that one should miss what he might hope to find. Which is at least how we put our show together. People included inkhorn words because they're actually really easy to define. Right, and when you define words that are taken for granted and used so commonly, it can become really difficult to do it. Let's take an example. Let's, let's take the word, take the word take. To take something. No, you can't. You can't use the word to define itself. But they used to. No, but they can't. You can't. We know better. Swift would not like your conjunction. He wouldn't like my accent either. Let's be honest. Okay, so to take is to 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 assume take. to assume <laughs> to assume possession of. Sure. Okay. And so once you get that done, you have that one definition. Then you have to account for circular definitions which would be like if you read the definition for take to assume possession of and then you go to assume and it says to take my mind is blown right so you can't do that you have to use different words to define the words that you use in definitions or it creates this loop that you'll never get out of so johnson also noted that to interpret language by itself is very difficult to explain requires the use of terms less abstruse than that which is being explained. And such terms cannot always be found. Let's go back to take. Once we have made sure that we have a definition that does not include the word itself, and we've made sure that our definitions are not circular, we must then make sure that we have accounted for every sense of the word. So take means to assume possession of, but it also can be used in the phrase, like, it takes three hours. It takes about five minutes. So in that case, you have to define what take means in that sense. And so you can say, like, requires or occupies a certain amount of time. And then you get to taking a bite. And then you get to taking a nap. Right, and you're just, then you're you just get hurting to... my head. This is just... Right. And so this word, take, that everyone uses every day, 
when we start trying to define it, can become a thesis <laughs> so quickly, it's offensive. But Johnson really did engage with all of these challenges, and rightly, his dictionary kind of became a standard. And it really was the first authoritative, definite article, the dictionary. Lynch, who is a Johnson scholar at Rutgers, wrote that no earlier name had the power to strike terror into the hearts of linguistic evildoers. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. I love it. <laughs> but I mean, he had his critics. John Horn Took called Johnson's Dictionary the most imperfect and faulty and the least valuable of any of his productions. Charles Richardson said, No man can possibly succeed in compiling a truly valuable dictionary of the English language unless he entirely deserts the steps of Johnson. Throw it in the fire. Right, like Amy did. One woman even wrote to Johnson complaining that he did not include obscenities. <laughs> She wanted to look up dirty words in the dictionary. Like every second grader. Second? I was in fourth grade. Well, I was precocious. <laughs> and he wrote back, no, madame, I hope I have not daubed my fingers. I find, however, that you have been looking for them. <laughs> so one type of criticism that is often cited is that he kind of uh, isn't very scholarly about his definitions. Or maybe isn't completely unbiased. It's very, yes. And so... An example, oats, a grain, which in England is generally given to horses, but in Scotland supports the people. Okay, that's a little little charged there, Sammy. So he defines lexicographer as a writer of dictionaries, a harmless drudge that busies himself in tracing the original and detailing signification of words. That's a little self-deprecating humor there, which he did have. He had a very wry wit. But he wrote in the preface, I am not yet lost in lexicography as to forget that words are the daughters of earth and that things are the sons of heaven. Oh, it's beautiful. Now, this was finished in 1755, 43,000 chosen headwords. And before it was published, he was able to persuade Oxford to give him a degree, saying it look good for you. Look good for me. It's a win-win. And they agreed. <laughs> Our six-year-old would say, Mom, we have to think win-win. Which is some corporate bullshit they're teaching him in kindergarten that really so freaks true. me out. <laughs> so this book was hugely successful. Went into four editions just in Johnson's lifetime. And like I said, it was a standard for over a century. Now, one of the financiers, Lord Chesterfield... <laughs> took a large amount of credit for the dictionary. And Johnson said he, quote, the morals of a whore and the manners of a dancing master. <laughs> Johnson had some hella sick burns, bro. Oh, and in the dictionary, the definition for patron was a wretch who supports with indolence and is paid with flattery. This sounds like a dictionary I would passive aggressively write, like, just for fun. Like defining people in, like if a barista was rude to me, I'd come home and write, barista, a nasty human who makes coffee and mean faces. <laughs> so he had another critic, an American critic, <sighs> Noah Webster. I've heard of Webster's Dictionary. You have, and that's because he wrote it. And he claimed that Johnson's work was extremely imperfect and full of error. Not a single page of Johnson's Dictionary is correct. So maybe a t tad bit of hyperbole there. But it should be noted that when Webster began his work on his American dictionary, the very notion of American culture was a laughable idea. This is the time of the revolution. Yes. 
early 1800s, people were still not taking America very seriously. One Englishman, Sidney Smith, wrote that Americans were... Mm, sorry, I've got to do it in the original English. Americans were a self-adulating race. In the four quarters of the globe, who reads an American book or goes to an American play or looks at an American picture or an American sculpture? What does the world yet owe to the American physician or the American surgeon? So he poo-pooed us pretty hard. Well, I mean, there wasn't much at the time. <laughs> so Webster was like, you're right. Our culture's kind of meh shit, but I know how to fix it. We should speak American. We do speak American. I know. I know. He wanted to give America its own language to help shape the national identity. And to that end, Webster had published books like The American Spelling Book, American Grammar, The American Reader. And the important thing to note about all of these books is while they dealt exclusively with language and the way in which it was employed, none of them have the word English in the title. Right. And this is on the late 1700s. And so we were really still pissed at those Brits. We had not quite come to the friends in peace moment yet. So, of course, Johnson was going to be a target for Webster. Imagine that there had been no dictionaries penned by either man. Johnson was a notorious Tory. Notorious Tory. Oh, my God. That's going to be the next installment of the Hamilton musical saga. If you can make that riveting, you can make dictionaries riveting. (laughs) Johnson had famously said that he was willing to love all mankind except an American. He said that the colonists were a race of convicts who ought to be thankful for anything we allow them short of hanging. So when Webster published An American Dictionary of the English Language, it's worth noting that it is Johnson's title, A Dictionary of the English Language, with the word American inserted boldly at the front. It's like an infix. <laughs> Absolutely. So out went the quotations from Milton and Shakespeare, and in came the words of wisdom from Benjamin Franklin and George Washington, who were... Incidentally, both friends of Noah Webster. Just incidentally? Yeah. I love that because it just shows how long we've been putting up these founding father figures. Oh, absolutely. Again, (laughs) he knew that we needed to create an American myth and he knew that we needed to create an American identity. And culture. And that would generate American culture. Because every young schoolboy and girl that would look up a word would see it defined by... Benjamin Franklin. You look up whore, I'd say Benjamin Franklin loves French whores. And then they would know forever that he invented electricity, libraries, fire departments, bifocals, and politics. (laughs) Ben Franklin was the original Secret Service agent, just putting that out there. But so now in America, Webster's means the dictionary. The same way that Johnson's came to represent kind of a code word for correctness. It was employed in a lot of writing at the time, like when someone would make a mistake with their language, another character, I think Jane Austen used this device, would mention like, oh, Samuel Johnson will not be happy with you or they'll get out Johnson's and scold you. So like when they would write a paper, they would say, the Webster American Dictionary of English Language defines the word. Yes, absolutely. So Webster kind of graciously ascended to this Almost pontification that comes with writing an authoritative book on language like the dictionary. He was an American character with an agenda and he relished the authority. Johnson was less enthralled with the idea of being this kind of litigant for correctness. 
He said lexicographer should not form, but register the language. That's not what he was doing at all. It's what he wanted people to think he was doing. It's what he wanted Oxford to think he was doing. But this highlights a debate that still rages to this day between prescriptive versus descriptive grammar. So descriptive, you're just describing what the word means. Yes. And you're trying to take a more scientific, and I'm doing big fat air quotes here, approach to recording the language. Kind of an unbiased approach. Right. And prescriptive is like, don't do that. You know, like is correcting, is um, prescribing the proper way to use language. And so... Like, like, I'm right, nothing else matters. Yes. So, easy way to kind of remember this and hang on to it, we're going to come back to it, is prescriptivists are police and descriptivists are diplomats. All right, I got it. Got it. All right. So, I guess there is a question to be ask here like did webster succeed in creating an american language in 1828 it was written it is not only important but in a degree necessary that the people of this country should have an american dictionary of the english language for although the body and the language is the same as in england and it is desirable to perpetuate that sameness yet some differences must exist language is the expression of ideas And if the people of one country cannot preserve an identity of ideas, they cannot retain an identity of language. So Noah Webster wanted us to speak, write, and read American. Because we have our own ideas of freedom and... Patriotism and democracy and all of those big shiny words that are capitalized when they really shouldn't be all the time. Or should they be? Okay. What uh, would Webster say? He would say yes. He would say yes, capitalize it for God's sake. George Washington would want it that way. So taking that into account, taking his agenda into an account, we also have to take the idea that a linguist named Max Wainwright put forward when he said that a language is a dialect with an army and a navy. What do you mean? Well, I mean, lots of people speak different dialects within one country, and a language is the officially recognized one that has sovereignty. That has sort of like a country. You can understand it like national borders in a geographic or geopolitical sense. Any widely shared dialect has its own rules, its own grammar, its own flourishes that differentiate it from a standard body. But when we officially adopt boundaries, borders, and a national identity, generally language comes with it. And so the only difference between a dialect and a language, according to Max, is the army and the navy, the sovereignty of the nation which recognizes this language. And in that spirit, it's interesting to note that America has been a sovereign state for quite some time. Yet, we do still speak English. I think that depends on who you ask. Pause for debate. We almost killed each other once. (laughs) Which time? (laughs) When we were arguing over whether or not America had a national language. It does not. It does not. And that infuriates me. Sorry. No, it shouldn't. But it... It is an urban legend that it was almost German. I hadn't heard that one. So it's interesting to note that there are differences between American Standard English and English English. OED English, if you will. The Queen's English. That is largely due to some organic factors, but a major agitator in the fight for change was Noah Webster. It's worth noting that English English... I'm going to keep doing that. I'm sorry. I don't know a better way to say it. Changed a great deal in the late 1600s. 
in regard to pronunciation, form, and usage. But American English was isolated far, far away across the pond in the swamps. The trash heap. In the trash heap, which now all I can think about is Fraggle Rock. (laughs) So this isolated English spoken in America retained a lot of the features of this more arcane, older English English. For example, educated English English speakers before the 1600s would have said fat, like you and I would say fat. However, you call me fat? Not. How about hat? <laughs> However, low-born English English speakers would have said hot or fat with that A-H in the middle. Different vowel emphasis. And this continued until after the American Revolution, at which time this shifted and the more accepted pronunciation began to have that A-H ah, sound fat that you still associate with English English today. While we in America held on to the original <laughs> at sound. Well, and then, of course, just being in a different place and having people from all over the world, we got lots of new words thrown in. Well, and we needed new words to describe new things. I mean, the very landscape demanded it. And so we get a lot of very common words from other languages due to the prevalence of mixing that's already going on in America. For example, the I'm wait, here's a fun game. I'm going to say some words and you guess which language they come from. Okay. Okay, so bluff, boss, and waffle. Oh, a waffle. What, Belgium? Yeah, it's Belgium. <laughs> it's Dutch. It's French. <laughs> no, damn. Goober, jambalaya, okra, and gumbo. Yeah, I know this one. What is it? That's African. Yes. Because... The word gumbo is actually the African word for okra. Yes, an African language. I'm not sure which one. And then how about prairie, bureau, and levee? Uh, French. They're all the same words. Oh, here's an easy one. Pretzel, sauerkraut, and nix. German. Good job. What about canyon, coyote, mesa, and tornado? I would guess Native American. Spanish. Huh. We do actually get a lot of words that were kind of taken down phonetically from Native American languages and changed into a more English-friendly spelling. And some of those include moose, raccoon, caribou, possum, skunk, hickory, pecan, squash, and toboggan. So we're having a ton of linguistic mixing in the early days of the American colony. And in the same sort of well, we need something to call it vain. A lot of English words were used to describe things that were kind of similar, but substantially different than the things that they might have stood for back in England. Things like laurel, beech, walnut, hemlock, robin, blackbird, and hedgehog all describe things that are different here that are similar there. So we just reuse the word close enough. And the same came to be true for the American system of government, which used pre-existing English words, but attributed new meanings and new power to them, such as Congress, Senate, and Assembly. And with that same American spirit of ingenuity, we started compounding words. Hell yeah, just throw them together. That's the only thing that makes it a Germanic language. So we get rattlesnake, bobcat, bluegrass, and bullfrog. And then, of course, we get new words for new things being invented. You see some more compound words like sidewalk, skyscraper, drugstore. But you also see it in things like the way we describe different parts of an automobile. For example, in England, cars have boots and bonnets. And in America, they have hoods and trunks. 
a bonnet. Really? My car does not have a bonnet. You have a, your Jeep does not have a bonnet. That would be no. hilarious. <laughs> Maybe it should. It would be a, it would be a very proper Jeep. <laughs> so early British travelers who visited the United States remarked on how distinct all the geographical dialects had already become. And this was because there was a huge influence from immigrant communities. And as the settlements became more established, they became often more isolated. And the dialects and the accents and the word usage became more entrenched in those communities and more marked. You know what marked means? Like in a grammatical sense or like... Let's look it up. (laughs) How about I just, I I guess, at defining it. So you have marked versus unmarked grammar. And that's used sometimes instead of standard and non-standard. It can mean just different inflections or different slang terms or non, just sort of non-standard usage. So marked grammar, marked speech is just a deviation from the canonical accepted forms. So after the whole, you know, Dear John letter is sent to England and we're like, we don't really want to see you anymore. And we're kind of going to make our own government. And they're like, nah. And we're like, yeah, but really. And then they let us. They let us. We make them. <sighs> We decide that we need to take more liberties with the language. We're taking it back. And we come back again to that great quote by Noah Webster. As an independent nation, our honor requires us to have a system of our own in language as well as government. Now, there were people who disagreed with Webster's notions about the language. For example, after Caleb Alexander published Columbian Dictionary of the English Language, which was an American publication, a reviewer wrote, This work, a disgrace to letters is a disgusting collection of every vicious word or phrase chosen by the absurd misapprehension or coined by the boars of each local jurisdiction in the United States. It is a record of our imbecility. Lovely. Now, the reason that we did not differentiate or diverge further from the British standard or English standard is because we still engaged in a lot of commerce with England. And this economic traffic and literal traffic between England and America has prevented further divergence. The areas of the U.S. where more distinctive dialects of English are spoken are well away from the halls of power, and their speech is typically stigmatized in general culture. New York and other money cities and the great universities have maintained versions of English not so different from the educated British standard. So what he's talking about here is actually marked grammar and marked English. So we have Mr. Webster... Mm-hmm. Who is going to fix the American language? Yes, he is. So enter our hero on a con- yeah, sure <laughs> on a conquering steed, pen in hand, American flag in the other. Oh, that's actually probably true. <laughs> he probably did hold a little American flag the whole time he wrote it. So he was born in 1758 in Hartford, and he attended Yale in the 1770s. And he joined his classmates in a student-directed military drill after the battles of Lexington and Concord. He was imbued with the great democratic spirit of America. He decided to practice law, but then he decided to become a teacher because that was not working out so well. But he founded a school in Sharon, Connecticut in 1781. And so he decided to publish the series which sort of united his passions for education and nationalism. And not in a scary Steve Bannon way. And in American Spelling Book, which was published in 1783, he wrote that he wished to diffuse uniformity and purity of language in American and destroy provincial prejudices. He was also responsible for standardizing syllables, phonetically spelling words instead of using Latin spellings of words, and spelling rules. And he also included moral lessons in his speller. Oh, thank you. 
And he sold 1.5 million copies between 1783 and 1801. That's ridiculous. Well, considering that the United States population was 2.8 million at the time, it is. So in the 1780s, he published his version of the New England Primer, which was a basic educational text followed by sketches of American policy, which articulated proposals for structure of a strong, balanced federal government as an alternative to the Articles of Confederation. Never idle, Webster traveled the country giving lectures on the English language. He also penned works advocating for the ratification of the new Constitution. Yes, I mean, he was in there. I mean, he is like a, like, B-level founding father. Who you call him B-level? Who's A-level? Who's a Just John Hancock. A friend that actually signed it. So on June 4th, 1800, he placed an ad for a forthcoming dictionary in the back pages of a Connecticut newspaper. And boy, did he deliver. 28 awesome. years oh. later. <laughs> Glad I paid for this up front. In 1800, Webster's idea was called preposterous by a Philadelphia newspaper. He was such a snob that the Federalist called him the monarch. Nice. And they loved monarchs. Oh, yes. But he did believe, and this was sort of radical for the time, that the mass of common people, not a select few, form language and establish its rules. Well, that is interesting because it's true. Well, it's democratic. You're right. Isn't it interesting? He's so American. He's, he's American. A uh, fucking American. <laughs> this offended the Federalists because they were kind of desperate to be taken seriously. And it offended the English who were severely affronted when he claimed that his work would surpass that of Johnson. Oh, no, you didn't. Oh, no, you didn't. He did, though. One English writer at the time wrote that Americans were addicted to innovation. I'm guessing he did not mean that nicely. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. <laughs> but he thought that this was just another expression of their incessant need to tinker with everything. So the dictionary was finally published in 1828. And it was standardized, and it was Americanized, and he included 70,000 words. And he was praised for his clear and thorough definitions. And like Johnson, his work was not unbiased. He inserted moral judgments and personal views in his definition. For example, when he defined monarchy, he illustrated how it might be used with the following quotes. A free government has a great advantage over a simple monarchy. John Adams, and Satan, whom now transcendent glory raised above his fellows with monarchical pride, Milton. Keeping some British writers in. Yeah, when it's handy. But then he became a Calvinist, and he became like much more staunch as he was recording his definitions and thoughts and things. And he began to advocate at this time that only men, specifically old men, should take office. Because young men would want to serve their own interest and not the people. And in his work, he defined politician as a man of artifice and contrivance. Completely unbiased. Right. Now, ironically, the dictionary itself was not altogether democratic because it cost $20 at the time it was published. Holy cow, it's like a million. Well, it's 511 and two cents in today's money. <laughs> I don't have two cents. <laughs> it was prohibitively expensive. So did he write this all himself? He did. And as I mentioned, it was quite a whopper. 70,000 words, two volumes, $20. This thing was Leviathan. 
And so his publisher was like, what if we, you know, didn't put all the words in? What if we shortened it? And Webster was like, I have no interest in doing this. And they were like, you know what? We do. (laughs) And so they went and found a guy to do it. And the guy they found to do it was called Joseph Worcester. And he had written geographies and histories. And he was currently living in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Now, some fun facts about Worcester. His wife... Amy Elizabeth McKean, different Amy, not a shrew, was the daughter of Joseph McKean, who was a professor of rhetoric and oratory at Harvard. In addition to his father-in-law credentials, he rented Craigie House, which was an 18th century mansion that had served as George Washington's headquarters when he was forming the American army. Now, they were not the only tenants in Craigie House. On the east side of the house lived Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Longfellow married Annie Appleton, which is the most American name ever, in 1843, and her father bought the house as a wedding gift, and the Worcesters were allowed to stay on as the tenants of the Longfellows until the spring of 1844. Today, the home is known as the Longfellow House slash Washington Headquarters National Historic Site. Notice there's no mention of Worcester. (laughs) Poor Worcester. So, Worcester firmly believed that he could improve upon Webster's dictionary. So, he was charged with abridging it. Right, which basically just meant cut some shit out. I'm guessing it's not all he did. He did not. He took some liberties with the pronunciations and made them more traditional. And where it says traditional, you should read British. Oh, no. I bet Webster was super excited about that. Oh, yes. So he was he was one of those people who believed that the purpose of a dictionary should be to rigorously record words, not to create a new version of the language. He added words in his abridged version, which seems counterintuitive. This is a real problem for Webster because he had tied language up with patriotism and Americanism and his very sense of self and decency and all that apple pie and stuff. And here are these British pronunciations and here are these changed etymologies and these soft definitions. Say it ain't so. No, no, no. This was not the love letter to this new burgeoning republic that Webster had imagined. No, no, no. Not at all. It was highly offensive. He didn't want the dictionary bridge to begin with. But now it had been, and it was selling well because it was only $5. He was so disgusted by the entire thing that he sold the copyright for the abridged version of the dictionary. Toot sweet. As soon as he finished reading it. Which I want to you to, for a moment, <laughs> picture a man hate reading the dictionary. <laughs> I can imagine it. I can too. It's good. So Octavo abridgment, as it was called, just kept selling. Well, the dictionary was not moving well. There was the matter of him having sold his copyright, which meant that the definitions which were included in the abridged version that belonged to him were now sold and really made things complicated. And this is one of the reasons that Webster is sometimes referred to not only as the dictionary guy, but as the father of American copyright law. Because all of this would become very embroiled in legal controversy over the course of his life. In the 1800s, there was a financial panic that caused the printing industry to sort of bottom out. And so the second edition of his dictionary was sold for much less money, but still not $5. And now it had to actively compete with the abridged version of his own work. And Worcester compounded injury and insult by producing his 
own dictionary the year after he abridged Webster's. Oh, I bet Webster did not take that sitting down. Well, he may have, but he had a pen in his hand, so it really did not matter. The advertisements for each of the dictionaries would specifically refer to one version. So if it was a Worcester advertisement, it would be far superior to Webster's. And if it were Webster's advertisement, it would be surpassing Worcester's. Or <laughs> they directly called each other out. Anonymous letters began to be published in the weekly newsletter, Palladium in Worcester, Massachusetts. And here's one. Webster's Dictionary, a gross plagiarism has been committed by Mr. J.E. Worcester on the literary property of Noah Webster, Esquire. It is well known that Mr. Webster has spent his life, which is now somewhat advanced, in writing a dictionary of the English language, which he published in 1828 in two quattro volumes. Three abridgments have since been made, one in an octavo form and two still smaller, for families and primary schools to aid in the drudgery of producing these abridgments, Mr. Webster employed Mr. Worcester, who, after becoming acquainted with Mr. Webster's plan, immediately set about appropriating, to his own benefit, the valuable labors, acquisitions, and productions of Mr. Webster. He has since published a dictionary, which is a very close imitation of Webster's, and which, we regret to learn, has been introduced in many of the primary schools in the country. We regret this because the public, inadvertently, do an act of great injustice to a man who has rendered the country an invaluable service and who ought to receive the full benefit of his labors. If we had a statute which could fix its grasp on those who pilfer products of the mind as readily as our laws embrace the common thief, Mr. Worcester would hardly escape the light of the mulet. And so, after that, Worcester writes into the paper. So that was an anonymous letter, right? It was just some concerned citizen. Yeah, of course. And so he writes to the editor, As you, Mr. Editor, are unknown to me, I am bound to believe that you are not aware that you are publishing a statement that is grossly false, but that you were informed that it was true, and that you supposed that you should promote the cause of justice by giving it publicity. I, however, know it and declare it to be utterly false, and I have ample means of proving it to be so before any impartial tribunal. If what I say is true... You must feel that you have done me. I am willing to believe unintentionally a serious injury. I'm sorry. Did Worcester just call fake news? Oh, he's calling him out. So then Noah Webster did send a letter in to the Palladium on December 17th of 1834. Sir, I see in your paper some remarks made on the plagiarisms committed on my dictionary by J.E. Worcester. He's like, some guy wrote in. I can't believe. Who, who could it be? Oh. And Mr. Worcester's denial of the fact. I wrote to Mr. Worcester March 22, 1831, inquiring whether he had borrowed many words and definitions from my books. He replied by letter dated March 25 and wrote, No, not many. Nice. That he borrowed some words and definitions, I suppose, to be proved by the fact that they are found in no British dictionary, at least none that I have seen. How many he took, I know not, and shall not take the trouble to examine. Had he taken more, his works would have been less defective and more correct. Of his plagiarisms, of another kind, you will hear more hereafter. Respectfully yours, in Webster. So later, and the editors wrote, 
Webster's Dictionary is now used to a great extent as a standard work. It has opposers, but the current of public opinion is in its favor. A great proportion of the members of Congress, not always the best judges to be sure, Shade. have recommended it, and in a certificate have expressed a wish that it may become a standard work. In the adoption of the one or the other, we have not a particle of personal interest, but we regret the product of the mind, which have been garnered up with the unwearied and long-continued toil, should be pillaged and appropriated to their own use by 11th hour laborers. Then Webster responded to the then publishers in a letter listing many of the 121 words that Worcester had stolen, believing that they could not be found in any other dictionary of the English language. Worcester then wrote back and listed all the older definitions and where many of the words could be found. Right, he said, You may perceive, sir, that your prima facie evidence is sufficiently disposed of. You inquire in what other dictionary the words are to be found. You were so candid as to say that I borrowed some words from you. You suppose to be proved by the fact that they are in no British dictionary, at least in none you have seen. Now, sir, it appears to me that it would be quite a sound logic to infer from the above statements that you have not seen, or at least have not carefully examined, many British dictionaries. Worcester. Some old school burns. <laughs> That's my favorite kinds. <clears throat> yes, but as Andrew Garfield would say, those are the best kind. Now this, interestingly, did continue even after Webster's death because his heirs wanted to retain copyright over the information. And tempers flared in 1860 when Worcester published a dictionary that was very, very well received. So the New York Times, in an article in 1860, weighs in on it. The one may stand to the imagination as English, English lexicography as the fountain, the other as the rich river of the English speech, whose propulsive course has known no retiring ebb, but deepened rather and widened with the growth of the master race, oh. whose grand and fitting language it is, and which laden with the spiritual wealth of a thousand years, it is ours to inherit as the first and foremost of all our inheritances. How do they make the dictionary racist? <laughs> the changes in the English dictionary give us altogether the most vivid realization of the achievements of the English race, and of themselves an imperial and epic history grander than the most elaborate, purposed histories. I would say people don't write reviews of dictionaries like this anymore, but I have one later. <laughs> That's true. And here we touch the very head and front of Webster's offending. The whole... <laughs> The whole Websterian system of linguistic comparison is so vicious that no surgery can save it, and his theory of language is enough to take one's breath to read it. <laughs> in the making of his dictionary, he seems to have begun by providing himself with a stock in trade of 20 vocabularies furnished with these crude and uncriticized list of words, prominent among them Syriac and Chinese. He sets himself to hunt in these likely sources the radicals of English words, one trembles at the possible result, and well, one may. For in the whole history of linguistic incubation, and there have been very monstrous ones, there is none so monstrous as that engendered by the great American lexicographer. It is a poor substitute when one looks for an intelligent account of a word to have an unexplained Welsh or Ethiopic root thrust in his teeth. <laughs> 
Yeah, this is precisely what Webster constantly d- does. True, a bristling array of Hebrew, Chinese, and Syriac words is decidedly imposing to the, quote, unskillful, and great reputation have been that made women. on the very foundation. There is nothing easier to do, requiring simply a mechanical comparison of vocabularies, and it is an errant, a piece of literary charlatanry, as was ever practice. Okay, so I'm going to go in there. There are shades of racism here. Oh, with Dr. Worcester, we get into science and sanity. We have no more such perversities as issue from the Ethiopic Walsa, preach from the Hebrew Baraka, or establish from Shaldic Yatsub, exclamation point. Let us be thankful that we have a dictionary from which that specter is exercised. Oh my God, they like Worcester because he uses white etymology. Yeah. Oh my God, it's ridiculous. And in the store, they even call it the War of Dictionaries. Huh. Now, one of the reasons that we all know Webster today is because his product, his copyright, was purchased by the Merriams, and they did a great job selling it. They were very smart business people, and they managed to get it into schools and get it shipped across state lines and did all kinds of wonderful economic gymnastics to ensure that Webster's was enshrined as the American Standard Dictionary. I want to know how much of his American language survived. He had some ideas about spelling that thankfully, I say thankfully, that hurt my eyes, I guess. There we go. That's just because we're used to now the standard spelling. Right. And so he wanted to spell bread, like what you eat with jam, B-R-E-D. He wanted to spell give, G-I-V. He wanted to spell mean, M-E-E-N. And he wanted to spell tongue, T-U-N-G. So he was trying to just like simplify it. Yes. And that, a lot of that's gone. But some things did stick. He wanted to use Z's instead of S's in words like industrialize. Did you just feel bad for Z's for not being used? Yes, they were neglected. And he also didn't want them called Z's. <sighs> that is ridiculous. <laughs> Shouldn't be able to spell a letter. And then he removed uh, the letter K at the ends of words like magic, which in certain communities... They've reinstated. <laughs> but that even became standard in England eventually. He d- took that damn U out of words, too. <laughs> yes, like honor and color. And then he reversed the R-E and E-R in words like center and theater, which I still spell the British way and did not know that that was a thing and always wondered why it was underlined in red. He changed defense with a C to defense with an S, took the X out of words like connection and replaced it with a CT, took Qs out of words like checker and mask. And a lot of these things did survive. And they're the intentional differences, the standardized differences you can see today between American Standard English and British English. And a lot of his notes on pronunciation survive as well. And then Worcester's book is just gone. It went, it, after the Civil War, it all but disappeared. A footnote at best. Was used for flint paper? Absolutely. <laughs> okay, so now enough of these nasty, uncivilized lexicographers. Let's talk about the pinnacle of language cataloging in and of itself. Let's talk about the Oxford English 
dictionary and get back to civility and all that is right with the world. Sanity. Let's get back to sanity with the Oxford English Dictionary. That's what you think. (laughs) So, in 1857, just over a century after the publication of Johnson's Dictionary, a formal proposal was put out. Johnson had presented this large selection of the language, but this new project would present all of it. All the words? All of it. All the language? Yes. Okay, that's going to take a a peep, a hot minute. Yeah, just like a minute. Remember, all of these lexicographers... Think they're God? Well, yeah, it's true. (laughs) But they grossly underestimate the amount of time these projects will take. So it was called The Big Dictionary. (laughs) Because they had a way with words. If they had a big thesaurus... (laughs) This wouldn't be a problem. So at this time, the great empire was at its peak, at its pinnacle. Pinnacle of humanity. Mm -hmm. Or at least they sure thought so. And with this great hubris... Minus America. Minus that. I just misplaced it. (laughs) Friends in peace. They're totally cool with us. They'll come back. Just wait, you guys. They'll come back. Crawling back. So this project would take 70 years to complete. That actually sounds about right. They would chart the life of every word, starting from its birth, the first time it was written down. Now, of course, they had to use the first time it was written down. Because the first time it was spoken wasn't recorded. Exactly. That's technically the word's prehistory. And we're not charting that. We're not animals. So they would find a passage from literature showing when it was first used. Quote, a dictionary is an historical monument, the history of a nation contemplated from one point of view and the wrong ways into which a language has wandered may be nearly as instructive as the right ones. So this was not just about the meaning of the words, but the history of the meaning. So in the biz, we call that etymology. Right, more than just lexicography. Right. So this is an etymological, lexicographical tome. Say that five times fast. Uh, It's my rap name. So by doing this, they could demonstrate the full range of characteristics of all the words in the English language and show how it had changed over time. Every form and shade of meaning would be illustrated by the citations from great English authors. And this is all very specifically English. Oh, yes. No markings. Well, not necessarily, but that's how it started. Okay, so this is a monument, a love letter, as it were, to the Queen's English. And we are going to examine the wrong turns of words and how they've been righted. And now the language is in a perfect state and we must record it for posterity. Yes. Okay, here we go. I'm feeling patriotic. So I think we've come to a moment when we have reached the part of this exercise that might be called good in theory hell in practice like i mean how many people do they have working on this i think you could make every oxford student professor and their entire families work on this non-stop for 70 years and still probably not have everything just right right so what better way to do this than crowdsourcing are you kidding me no they crowdsourced it that's awesome So they issued a circular calling for volunteer readers. They could select from which period of history they would like to read books, from 1250 to 1526, the year of the New English Testament, from then to 1674, the year when Milton died, or from 1674 to what was present day. They felt each period was its own kind of development of the language. 
its own chapter, as it were. Yes. For these volunteer readers to peruse at will. They were asked to read and they'd make word list. And then they'd be, they'd be asked to look super specifically for certain words that currently interested the dictionary team. Each volunteer would take a slip of paper, write at the top left-hand side the target word, and below, also on the left, the date of the details that followed. These were, in order, the title of the book or paper, its volume and page number, and then below that, the full sentence that illustrated the use of the target word. So they're basically making flashcards with these words on them, and then I guess they mail them in to the people who are actually compiling the dictionary, correct? Correct. Fantastic. I love this idea. Would actually like this job. Oh, no, you wouldn't. They went through several different editors to start off with. The, one of the first people built this kind of pigeonhole system with, you know, a few hundred holes to try to organize this paperwork. But okay, it, I just want to shoot this man right yeah, now. He's yeah, just making me angry. Underestimation. By the end of this whole process, they received more than six million slips of paper from volunteers. Oh my God, my kingdom for a digital archive. Right, you just have to remember, no computers, no computers. This is like an impossible task. So one of the early editors was Herbert Coleridge. Was he related to Samuel Taylor? He was his grandson. Oh, lovely. Was he he, an opium addict too? I don't know, but I know he died before they even got through A. Oh no, that's terrible. You at least want to get to a consonant. Not even through one. Poor, poor Coleridge again. It's like being interrupted mid-writing Kublikon. His dictionary was like an albatross around his neck. Oh, well that starts with A, so that's lucky. Yes, I think that's where he ended. <laughs> He's like, oh, I can quote Granddad and I can die happy. And maybe that's all he wanted. Maybe he just wanted to write the definition for albatross. Maybe so. So it really didn't get going until James Murray became the editor. I know that name. Well, like, he he's, his name's on a bunch of it. Like, he's very associated oh, with Oh, he is, like, the, the dude. editor. Yeah. He edited it for 40 years. Yeah, he gets to be known. And he was born on the Scottish border in 1837, the eldest son of a tailor and a linen draper. Well, that's a match made in textile heaven. Right, but obviously not very well-to-do. No, no, no. That's why he had to go to work basically in the basement of Oxford with his pigeonholes and his slips of paper forever. He was actually in jail. No, he actually was extremely precocious, taught himself numerous languages, botany, geography, astronomy. He would even go in archaeological digs near Hadrian's Wall, which he lived near, and he would even teach the cows calls in Latin. We would have been nerd friends when we were kids. Oh my God. He became the local headmaster by 20 years old, and he lectured on phonetics, linguistics, philology, and he became a member of the Philological Society. And that was the group that really pushed forward this idea of the big dictionary. I'm telling you, we would have had friendship bracelets and braided each other's hair like every Thursday and Friday night. Well, so James Murray took over this job, and he created some sample pages, and he took it to the greatest, most respected press in all the land. Oxford. Right. And so this is when it becomes associated with Oxford on March 1st of 1879, 25 years after the initial proposal. I'm surprised Oxford wasn't like, oh, no, no, we already have a dictionary. We already did Johnson's. We don't need your big dictionary. Take your big big dictionary and go. They wanted the big dictionary. Are you five? 
Yes. Okay. So he did not work in the basement. He built a building called and called it the Scriptorium. And I'm moving in. And so he issued a new call for volunteers. To the English-speaking and English-reading public, want help from readers in Great Britain, America, and the British colonies to finish the volunteer work so enthusiastically commenced 20 years ago by reading and extracting the books which still remain unexamined. You know they weren't the good ones at this point. <laughs> People become frustrated with it prior to him taking over because things were just not moving along. They'd planned to publish it in pieces so they could make money. So you get like A and B. Right. But whoever needs words that only start with A and B? Well, it's kind of like almost like a subscription in a way. If like you uh, buy that, okay. then two years later, you get the next. You get C and et cetera. Yeah, lovely. Good plan, guys. So in 1884, five years after Murray took over, they published the first set from A to Ant. To say this is painstaking is grossly understating it. And it was called A New English Dictionary on Historical Principles, founded mainly on the materials collected by the Philological Society, edited by James A.H. Murray, sometimes president of the Philological <laughs> Society, with the assistance of many scholars and men of science. Science, huh? Of course. They were including all the uh, words. All the words. That, okay, fine. Y'all can come too. So there were a few superstar volunteers. So these are the people who would get the stupid rewards on Kickstarter. These are the ones that would like get the the trip out to meet the people and yes, they're paying like two thousand dollars. Okay, or the big table at the society benefit, whatever. And one of them was a man named Doctor W. C. Minor, and he was so instrumental in the creation of the dictionary that he was thanked in the preface. The unflagging service of Doctor W. C. Minor, which have week by week supplied additional quotations for the words actually preparing for press. I think that's an interesting notation. And if I were to parse it, which I'm going to, I would say that he was a targeted scholar. Like he was not only, he was not haphazardly reading, like he was able to recall where he'd seen a word and go retrieve it. He developed a system to catalog words and to where he could be asked for a word and could very easily go look it up. Look it up? That's a newfangled notion. It is. So a grand dinner was eventually held on October 12th of 1897. This was the Queen's Jubilee year, and they were going to dedicate the letter C to her. That is so kind of them. Oh, no, they had to get her permission. Oh, that was so kind of her to let them (laughs) dedicate the letter C to her. And so they invited all the great scholars that were helping produce this, including Dr. W.C. Minor. Oh, because I guess this was all male correspondence up until this point. It's not like he was working in the scriptorium because he was a volunteer. Right. He was a volunteer. You know, Murray assumed he was a doctor, you know, just had either a busy job and, you know, was just liked doing this stuff or that he was like a retired doctor that just had leisure time. So, wait, you're telling me that... The Murray, knowing that there was a doctor who possessed fonts of useless information, thought that he might have a day job and just do this endless research and voluntary information sharing for fun. So let me tell you what else I researched. Wait, <laughs> such an individual could not exist. Well, so everyone was disappointed because Dr. Minor did not show up. To the Queen's Jubilee dinner where they were going to give her the letter C? Exactly. That dinner was brought to them by the letter C. True. And so after Minor missed the dinner, 
Murray wrote to him at once, saying, I have long wanted to meet you, and may I perhaps suggest that I come to visit you? Oh my gosh, so he's not only saying, like, let's get together, he's saying, I'll come to you. He's serious about it. Right, so they agreed on a time to meet, and he took the train to Crawthorn, where he lived. Okay. The address from all of his letters just said, Dr. W.C. Minor, Broadmoor, Crawthorn. And so he was greeted at the train station by a coachman waiting for him. So it's a fancy doctor. Yeah. So he's like, I was right. So this is a guy of, of means. And so the big coach began to drive him through town and then started to move out of town. And he's like, he must have a grand estate. Exactly. Stopped at a large front gate with a pair of large towers and a green door being opened by servants. This guy must be one hell of a doctor. And he was brought in, brought up a set of marble stairs to a large room. Now, a portly man waited for him behind the desk. So he introduced himself as James Murray, editor of the Oxford English Dictionary. And you, sir, must be Dr. William Minor. At long last, I am most deeply honored to meet you. Well, isn't that prim? And the portly man stood up and paused and then replied, I regret not, sir. I cannot lay claim to that distinction. I am the superintendent of the Broadmoor Criminal Lunatic Asylum. Shut the fuck up. (laughs) Dr. Minor is an American and is one of our longest staying inmates. He committed a murder and is quite insane. No! No! Okay. What a twist. Okay, so now we know that Dr. Minor is... Not the owner of this grand estate, but rather a prisoner there. Now I regret my jokes about Dr. Murray being a prisoner to the Oxford English Dictionary. (laughs) Foot in mouth. Wait, and again, pause. Murder, you say? A murder most foul. Murder. Like a murdery murder? Like, did he, like, uh, no, tell me about the murder. I need to know about this murder. So this was Victorian London and in Lambeth Marsh a slum across the Thames from Westminster, which was this low, swampy, kind of undrained area, very undeveloped, very bad reputation. Part of the reason, besides it not being developed, was that it wasn't in London's jurisdiction. It was the no-man's land. Yes, it was home to pubs, brothels, and lewd theaters. I want to go to a lewd theater in the swamp near London just to see what it is. I think that's probably something that would warp my mind forever. Sounds fun. Yeah. So on February 17th, 1872, three revolver shots rang out at two in the morning. I'm guessing Miner had the offending weapon. Right. And it's not normal for people to have guns in London even at that time. Right, right, right. That's so Markin. Yeah, and, and papers love to comment on this. One saying... Happily, we in this country have no experience of the crime of shooting down so common in the U.S. Now, police heard... Is that from last week? So now, police heard the gunshots, quickly blew their whistles, and ran towards the action. Except that one guy who's like, guys, it's just a car backfiring. And they're like, you're from the future, get away! Can a horse backfire? Yes. (laughs) Yes, it can. So, when they got to the scene, they found a man lying in a pool of blood. This man, who was George Merritt, and he was a stoker at the Red Lion Brewery, and he was walking to work early one morning when he heard a man shout out, out at him. The man was wearing a lead-tipped kosh and wearing a mask, yelling angrily, and he began to chase him. So George Merritt runs, and the masked man takes chase, stops, raises his gun, and fires until he hits him, and George Merritt is down. Now, the constable... 
was able to apprehend the man. Despite the fact that he had a lead tip kosh, which I have just researched and found out is an easily concealable club and or blackjack. Good to know. Now you know. Did you look that up in the dictionary? I did. They described him as a, as having a military appearance, tall, well-dressed, but still holding a smoking revolver. So he's Johnny Cash, is what you're telling me. I said, who is it that is fired? He said, I did. I said, <laughs> okay. Whom did you fire at? And our man Minor points to the bleeding man, Merritt. It was a man. Did you not suppose I would be so cowardly as to shoot a woman? Oh, well, he had manners. Then he stated that he was after someone who had broken into his apartment. So they found out that this man's name was William Chester Minor, a 37-year-old former military officer and qualified surgeon. He's an old sawbones. Exactly. So military, I'm guessing Civil War? Yes. So he was taken to jail and charged with murder. Now the complication was that he was an American Mm. and he had the commission from the U.S. Army. Oh, yeah, that gets tricky. Another quote from the paper. The light estimation in which human life is held by Americans may be noted as one of the most significant points of difference between them and Englishmen. So on questioning, he would only say that he had shot the him on accident and thought he was another man. All right, then. On your way. Pip, pip, cheerio. Oh, no. So Scotland Yard was put on the case. Oh, well. So they found that he had come to London with quite an inflamed mind. He had taken retirement from the army on grounds of ill health, and he was described as a gentleman of fine education and ability, but with eccentric and dissolute habits. So a good guy gone bad. At the trial, the full story came out about his eccentric habits. It was murdering men and then pointing to them and saying, that man bleeding there. That was a little more than that. More than that? Yes. So first of all, they wanted to know why he was living in this area. He was a well-to-do guy. He he was from a well-to-do family in New Haven, and he had a pension from the U.S. Army. So he liked living in this area because he liked the ladies. Oh, of course. Easy access Mm. to them. But he was also very anxious, and he thought that people were always after him, especially the Irish. Okay. Let's just say, poor decision to go closer, closer to, to the Irish. Yes. So he complained to Scotland Yard that people were coming into his room at night and trying to poison them. He thought the Finian Brotherhood was, was after him. I was about to say it jokingly. No, he did. And so he made this complaint numerous times to police. He told police that overnight, unknown Irishmen would always come into his room and violate him in many ways. Oh, goodness. He has phantom Irish syndrome. So he may have gone to London to seek out the base of operations of the Finians and confront them. Probably he sounds not. crazy <laughs> enough to have done that. But there was a huge presence of the Irish expat brotherhood, the Finians, in the New England area. And that will come into play. Okay. So he began sleeping with his cult serv- service revolver beneath his pillow. Always a good habit. And... The occurrence that he was waiting to happen, apparently he thought did, and he chased after Merritt, shooting him down. Is there any proof that Merritt didn't break into his house? There's no proof that he did. I mean, it's very unlikely. There are numerous reports of him complaining about Irishmen after him. Fine. I was just going to say the lawyer in me is like, that's obviously your defense. So while he was in jail, they had something called a Bethlehem Watcher there to monitor his status. So I'm guessing this is someone who watches him. Well, yes. 
But so Bethlehem is the large hospital for the insane mm. in London mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and where the term Bedlam comes from. So he was taken from his post there so he can come and watch Dr. Meyer while he was in jail. And in the trial, he said, It was most curious and disturbing experience. Each morning, Dr. Miner would awake and immediately accuse him of having been paid by someone specifically to molest him while he slept. Then he would spit dozens of times, as though trying to remove something that had been put into his mouth. He would next leap from his bed and scrabble about underneath it, looking for people who, he insisted, had hidden there and were planning to annoy him. He's like Richard Chase crazy. Dennis told his superior, the prison surgeon, that he was quite certain William Miner was mad. He is like Richard Chase crazy. If this is the first guy he killed, we're doing okay. I mean, not to make light of it, but it seems like this guy could have been Jack the Ripper. Oh my God, could he have been Jack the Ripper? So had he not been in prison at the time, I totally would have pinned him for Jack the Ripper. I mean, they always said it was a surgeon. He was definitely not out and about. I mean, maybe he escaped at night and took a train. I don't know. It was totally him. He was in league with the Irishman and did it. So his lawyers claim that he was not guilty due to being of unsound mind, and they They, bought it. Yeah, because he wasn't. So he was to be detained in safe custody until Her Majesty's pleasure be known, and was transferred to the new Asylum for the Criminally Insane at Broadmoor. And that's where the Broadmoor Crawthorn comes in. Okay, so wait, we go from a well-respected Civil War surgeon to a man institutionalized until Her Majesty's pleasure be known because he's raving mad and killing people in the street seems like there may have been some trauma yes i would assume sawing people's legs off could have contributed well maybe so he was born to a first line american aristocracy and he was born in sri lanka and eventually made his way back to america studying medicine at yale and he graduated in february 1863 so right in the middle of the civil war Noah Webster was from Hartford and went to Yale as well. Just fun fact. So he joined the Union Army, and four days after joining, it wasn't there, but the Battle of Gettysburg occurs. Perhaps I haven't thought this through, he says to himself. No. No, he's all in it. He's in. He's itching to go. He wants to join the battle. Gettysburg is the turning point. Right, right. The Union is now winning. He wants to be a part of it. Now, little did he know the horrors of war. The ferocity of neighbor against neighbor. Now we had new weapons being used, new injuries from these new weapons, but no new medicine. No penicillin, no anesthesia. Now we've all heard the massive amount of casualties that occurred in the Civil War. 360,000 Union troops dying and 258,000 Confederate troops. But for everyone that died of wounds, two died of incidental infections illness and poor hygiene including like gangrene and amputations it's hard to say what or when caused his big break but But there was one oh yeah but he definitely got his wish to get out into the battlefield on may 1864 was the battle of the wilderness in virginia which sounds like an emo band name was one of the like bloodiest battles of the civil war and one of the reasons was that this was the beginning of grant's plan to completely destroy the confederate army but this was just like an archetypical civil war battle grant's army versus lee's army it was a gently sloping brush 
filled swampy land. A morass, in other words. So they couldn't use cavalry, couldn't use large artillery. It was a very man-to-man, point-blank, bayonets and hand-to-hand combat kind of battle. Oh my god, it sounds like absolute, literal, complete and total hell. Yeah, and even the brush caught a blaze during the battle. I mean, so it literally looked like hell. Literally. One soldier wrote, Forest fires raged. Ammunition trains exploded. The dead were roasted in the conflagration. The wounded, roused by its hot breath, dragged themselves along with their torn and mangled limbs in the mad energy of despair to escape the ravages of the flames. And every bush seemed hung with shreds of blood-stained clothing. It seemed as though Christian men had turned to fiends, and hell itself had usurped the place of earth. So, sincerely and truly, I do have to say that the description of the battle that you just read makes Bosch seem like illustrations for a children's book. I always love Bosch because I like to look at the little details. I mean, that's like what he had going for him. That was the thing. I know, that you, like, need a magnifying glass yes, like, to see everything. Absolutely. So another factor that could play into Miner's pathology was that you mentioned they had a lot of Irish in New England and they had a lot of Irish fighting for the Union Army. So they even had one brigade called the Irish Brigade. Yep. It had a red clover on its flag. They're fabulous. And it was one of the fiercest fighting groups in the Union Army. Except Many, for maybe the fighting tigers. Well, they're, they're in the, the Union Army. Okay, fine. They can be in the Union Army. Which we've kind of mentioned this before. Many were training to return to England and... You know, take the place over. Yeah, Finian's Rebellion. I thought you said the Finian's Rebellion. <laughs> Finian's Rebellion, okay. But they also had a fierce rivalry with American blacks. Because they were the bottom rung of, of white people. Yes. And the only thing that was making them better... Was black picking people. On black people. Yeah, it was the color of their skin. Yeah. That's it. That's all they had. And so whenever the Emancipation so Proclamation comes out, they're like, screw you, Union Army. And they're not fighting like they used to. They had huge increases in desertion, and they really just lost sympathy for the Union cause. Because they're like, who are we going to be better than now? Like, no one. Oh my God, this is as bad as it was back. So there were many gruesome punishments for desertion at this time. In, even including one case of crucifixion in Tennessee. Shut the front door. But in this case, they had caught a young Irish deserter. Uh-huh. And they thought that it would be perfect for the new Dr. Minor. To brand him. To brand they're him. They're going to make him brand him. With oh a my D. For a deserter. Now, that this is not uncommon. No, it was done... I want to say frequently, but it was definitely done more With than With regularity. Once. And so he pressed the hot iron into the man's cheek as the man was held down. So the Irishman was marked for life. He now could not go and fight in the UK because people would automatically know that he was from the US and was trained in the Union Army. Mm. So this might explain his fear of Irishmen that he felt were after him seeking revenge. I mean, it does make it infinitely more logical than it seemed the first time you told me about it. So he continued to work through various hospitals after the Civil War, and he continued to become more eccentric. He began to carry his revolver with him at all times. He always thought soldiers were talking about him behind his back. And even at one time, he challenged one of his best friends to a duel. So he was eventually diagnosed with monomania, an insanity involving an intense obsession with one topic. And his was the Irish? Yeah. It was kind of paranoia. So he had 
He had monomania with an emphasis in the Finian Brotherhood. Yes. So it was recommended that he be institutionalized at the Government Hospital for the Insane in D.C., which is the same hospital that held Ezra Pound and John Hinckley. Oh, is that Jodie Foster's boyfriend? That tried to kill Reagan? Yeah, yes. well, no, I mean, like, he wasn't actually her boyfriend. He was her stalker. I shouldn't make a joke. Stalkers are serious business, as are presidential assassination attempts. But his name is John Hinckley. So he stayed for 18 months and then was deemed incurable and retired. Retired from what? The army. Okay. So he was honorably discharged because they did feel that most likely his mental problems were related to his service. I just want to say that they are quickly convincing me that they have a better handle on mental health and veterans affairs than we do today. Oh, like 150 years ago? Yeah, that's what I mean. So after his release, he headed to London to rest and recuperate and just get away from it all. He must not have looked at a map and seen where they keep the Irishmen. He wasn't worried about real Irishmen. He was worried about Finians. He was worried about people who had had to flee Ireland. It actually makes perfect sense to go to Ireland to get away from the Finians. (laughs) There were lots of Finians in Ireland, Sam. So that's where we come back to where we were. He has now killed a man and he's now thrown in... Broadmoor, mm. institution mm-hmm. for the criminally insane. Yes. I forgot what he was doing there. Like, I completely forgot the dictionary bit. So now he is in Broadmoor. He has all the time in the world. And he also has plenty of money because he's well-to-do in the first place uh-huh. and he's getting his pension, which uh-huh. his brother is sending him. So he gets two cells. Oh. <laughs> he's able to turn one into a library, which he furnishes, outfits, pays to have bookshelves built. No, he has built-ins, that asshole. And he had his books sent over from New Haven and then started ordering books from the London bookstores. This sounds like Al Capone's cell. Oh, he had a small selection of wines and bourbons. And he even paid other inmates to keep his room up. Okay, I'm just going to go on record right now and say that if this is what happens to me when I shoot a man in the street, I'm going to be looking into getting a firearm. Not so bad. Like, I think I could be perfectly happy in a well-appointed cell writing dictionary entries (laughs) if I had bourbon and wine. So as he lived this life of leisure, his delusions became more fixed and more bizarre. Now how? He thought small boys were put in the rafters and came down while he was asleep, chloroformed him, and then forced him to perform indecent acts. So a few of the psychonotes. At night, he barricades the door to his room with furniture and connects the handle of the door with the furniture using a piece of string so that he will awaken if anyone tries to enter his room. The doctor is convinced the intruders manage to get in from under the floor through the windows and then pour poison into his mouth through a funnel. He now insists on being weighed each morning to see if the poison has made him heavier. He is the subject of machinations. This lies at the heart of the brutal torture to which he is subjected each night. His spinal marrow is pierced, and his heart is operated on with instruments of torture. His assailants come through the floor. So I know I've said it, and I know it's not... In case you don't know exactly what I'm talking about, Richard Chase was the vampire serial killer, and he had very similar delusions. He had... But it was Nazis, not Finians, were coming to him and, like, physically altering his body. He became preoccupied with his weight. He believed that everything that he put into his body was tainted. He was worried about soap. I mean, it's a, it's a persecutory, paranoid delusion. I mean, it's something you see in people like schizophrenia, which he most likely had. So while his delusions were worsening, he was developing this scholarly side, and most of his problems were at night. One note even said he is irrational and intelligent for the most part. 
He'd become remorseful of his actions, and he wrote to the widow Merritt, offering money, which she not only accepted, but began to visit him. One must wonder if maybe that was going on in the first place. <laughs> Probably not, but some people do wonder if they had a little little something-something. She would visit him often, and she began to bring him books. And she, he would, like, give her a list, and she would go pick them up from the large you know, book merchants, who was barely literate, and bring them to him. I have to bring these books to Dr. Minor. Who's Dr. Minor? Oh, he's the man who killed my husband. Oh, lovely. Here you go, madam. Do you need a receipt? So it's hard to say where he heard about Murray's proposal for the Oxford English Dictionary, but these pamphlets were sent out to all of the bookstores, and it's very possible that one was stuck in his package. It's good marketing. They were so ahead of their time. Yeah. I mean, it's great. I love it. They're crowdsourcing. They're marketing. Target marketing. Target marketing. Now, Murray wrote later that he received Miner's letter offering assistance very soon after he commenced the dictionary. Murray recounted years later, I never gave a thought to who Miner might be. I thought he was either a practicing medical man of literary case with a good deal of leisure or perhaps a retired medical man or surgeon who had no other work. Sort of. <laughs> he was retired from the army. And he didn't have any other work, so you're quarter right. <laughs> like I was mentioning earlier, he would meticulously read through books. He developed a system where he was very easily able to look up quotations, and he became a huge asset. The editors would write to him with hard-to-find quotations from words, and he was able to easily look them up and send them back. I think he probably had a little bit of an adactic memory. Very clear recall, apparently. And I do wonder also if he had some sort of obsessive-compulsive disorder. Well, you know, I mean, all those, you know, people like to take mental illness and say it's this or this. But, I mean, it's, it's all just a hodgepodge, really. Mm -hmm. He just had, he clearly had... Some sort of degeneration. And I also wondered, because it was worse at night, if it might have been some sort of early onset dementia or Alzheimer's. That's a good thought. I didn't think of that. But even when he was working on these books, through the 20 years he was doing it, over 10,000 pieces of paper. And most of them used. Yeah, because you know there was like a grandma who was quoting the Daniel Steele equivalents. <laughs> they were like, thanks, Miss Pearl. <laughs> But he was still very delusional. He began to think that there were people who were sneaking in and marking his books. That a spare key was used at night to allow villagers in to abuse him and his possessions. And that electricity was being used on his body. So I'm sure this must have been quite the surreal experience for Murray, who was there to meet him. I have to wonder what that relationship was like. Like, was he so taken aback that he didn't meet with him? Did they, you know, did he study him? Like, what happened? Well, interestingly enough, the version of the story we've told so far about the dinner and him not showing and the editor Murray not knowing what was going on is actually an urban legend in its own right. I feel like you just trolled me. Maybe. So this version of the first meeting was fictionalized by an American writer, Hayden Church, and it's such a fantastic tale, that it was picked up by the wires and appeared in papers around the world. As well it should have, to be fair. Oh, it's really only the first meeting that's the fictionalized part. Everything else is true. So in The Professor and the Madman by Simon Winchester, which is one of my favorite nonfiction books, um, he talks about the story. And he also recounts a letter written by Murray to his friend, kind of recounting this. He had noticed that the address was Broadmoor, and originally assumed that he was a medical officer there. Oh, 
Fair assumption. He continued to correspond with him for several years until one day, between 1887 and 1890, the late Mr. Justin Windsor, librarian of Harvard College, was sitting chatting in my scriptorium and among other things remarked, You have given great pleasure to Americans by speaking as you do in your preface of poor Dr. Minor. This is a very painful case. Indeed, I said with astonishment, in what way? (laughs) So there wasn't even that much foreshadowing. So he did go visit him. They did strike up a friendship and a relationship where he would visit often. They would write often. He would even bring his wife sometimes. But he would take care to write to the superintendent to make sure that Minor was in an appropriate mood. Before he brought his wife along. Exactly. So Minor did continue to worsen. And he eventually was released to America. (laughs) Kind of so he can go and die there. Oh, I thought you meant they were like, yeah, y'all can have that. But actually, Winston Churchill is who reviewed the case and allowed it to occur. Nice of him. Now, James Murray died on July 26 of 1915. At the time, they had finally completed the letter T. That's a lot of progress. It took five years to do the letter T. A lot of T's. And William Minor eventually died in 1920. Now, the OED took another eight years to finish, and the announcement of its completion was made on New Year's Eve of 1927. What an amazing endeavor that was. So with all the feuding and the fighting and the blood and sweat and tears, literally, that goes into creating a dictionary or a reference work in general, clever editors would sort of pull a Van Halen. This is the most Van Halen heavy episode of this program you will ever hear. I can almost guarantee it. Now, because they needed very important and technical setups for their fantastic shows with all the special effects and whatnot. Hey, they are fantastic. I saw them. I know you did. We're not going to talk about it anymore. But they would send a writer that would have all of these specifications in it, and in it they would say that they wanted a bowl of M&Ms to be in their dressing room, but they'd make it very clear that there were to be no green M&Ms in the bowl. And this was just, you know, to give them a quick sign when they got there, if they saw green, green M&Ms. It's no brown M&Ms. No brown M&Ms. I hate to correct your Van Halen history. I know you're a scholar. I, I am. Okay, fine. No brown M&Ms, because those are suspicious. Green M&Ms are an aphrodisiac. So, of course, they want those. They would know that they had not carefully read the writer and that David Lee Roth is doing his little pixie jump across the stage in his full body harness. He might tumble to the ground and thousands of fans, millions of fans, dare I say, would be sorely disappointed. So, in that spirit, many reference work editors begin to include little fake entries. Oh, that's great. For example, there was an entry in the Rupert Hughes Music Lovers Encyclopedia of 1903 that read ZZXJOANW. That's a word. Zajuna. Gonna use it in Scrabble. It's in the dictionary. It is in that dictionary. But supposedly it was a Maori word that means drum, fife, and conclusion. But fun fact, Maori does not use the letters X, Z, or J, so it was complete fabrication. Perhaps a more elaborate entry was concocted by the New Columbia Encyclopedia that offered us the biography of Lillian Virginia Mountweasel. Now, Miss Mountweasel was born in Bangs, Ohio, and she became famous for her work on Flags Up, which was a photo collection of rural American mailboxes. No, she didn't. Just let me tell the story, okay? 
And she was also an American fountain designer. Now, she unfortunately perished on the job while she was researching an article for Combustibles magazine. Now, I want you to guess which part of that entry is false. All of it. Yes, that's actually true. All of it is made up. There's no Lily in Virginia, Mount Weasel. But let me guess. This started appearing in other encyclopedias. It certainly did. Now, even more interestingly for us word nerds in the crew, it became a neologism. Mount Weasel began to be used as a word that meant phantom or false entry or mischievous entry. But Lillian has been, you know, written about in other encyclopedias, and she was also the subject of an exhibit in Dublin in which there were real people, like six different real people who took up various parts of her biography. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> to reproduce. So you can say, I can use it in a sentence. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of Mount Weasels on Wikipedia. Yes, there are. It's trolling. It's so, a high form. Right. I mean, so speaking of the internet, it has changed how we look things up. How we Google things? Look it up. And so the Merriam-Webster Dictionary is now, of course it's still in print, but online. And it attracts more than 12 million unique visitors monthly. Hey, that's almost as many as our show. Just kidding. Huh. Now, there are several different forms of the book. It does include curse words. So that lady would be very happy. Oh, she could just Google them to her heart's content. But with this popularity of the online dictionary, it now means that suddenly we can track words that people are searching for. So what people are curious about, what's on people's mind. So the editor, Peter Sokolowski, said... Samuel Johnson and Noah Webster had no idea if anyone would read a certain definition, but we know which words are being looked up. It's a way to trace people's thoughts. So sort of the zeitgeist, that collective unconscious, the things that unite us all, what's on people's minds, what is, what is the nation, what is the world wondering about? Right. I mean, of course, people are looking at hard-to-spell, hard-to-define words, affect, effect, paradigm, ubiquitous. The editor is saying most of them have classical roots and slightly abstract meanings, and they send people to the dictionary. But people are also going to look for comprehension, for definitions. They're not going to look for the spelling. And like you said, with that zeitgeist, you can see what is on people's minds by seeing what searches pop up. So are there specific examples that relate to events? Like, is oh, it right. like that? Is it like a response to? No, exactly. You know? Okay, so like, like when there's a buzzword. Right, like the first time they noticed it was when Princess Diana died, and they saw a spike in searches for paparazzi. Buzzing fly. Now, Sokolowski says that the death of Michael Jackson was one of the most intense vocabulary events. So what were people looking up with Michael Jackson? I can't think of one word with him that comes to mind. Well, interestingly, they began to search for six words in sequence. Stricken, resuscitate, condolences, icon, RIP, and emaciated. And he said those words tell a story all by themselves. Yeah, it's like Hemingway's poem, the baby shoes for sale never used. Right, and then after 9-11, the two most look-up words were not concrete words. They were surreal and succumb. Hmm. Which, interestingly enough, after 2016's election, surreal was one of the most popular words looked up. Because everyone was saying, (laughs) like, I think a lot of that has to do with the way news coverage comes out, where people have their certain talking points that they go out and say on every show. Oh, no, definitely. And that's why I think the sequence was probably people reading the main AP story Mm -hmm. and kind of looking those words up as they went through. That's just a guess. 
Yeah, it seems like it would have to be something like that. Like I said, in 2016, the word of the year was surreal. And there were three major spikes in interest for this word. It wasn't just the election. In March, there was the coverage of the Brussels terror attacks. Then there was the coup attempt in Turkey and the attack in Nice. So they had spikes for more than just that. It was that it was being used so much in news coverage and all these different stories that it would spike because people want to know what the real definition was. I will tell you, once you start going to the dictionary for the definition of words that you use every day, sort of in conversation, you will become dependent on it. It's like a drug. Like, I seriously have a definition addiction. One kind of interesting one is that last April, when Prince died, the word icon spiked. He was an icon. Uh, Very true. You don't have to be rich to be his girl. But so by looking at how the words are spiking, you can really get a a really good idea of what people are interested in and what they want to know more about. As Sokolowski says, dictionary is a neutral observer of culture. In this, we can read data, but we can't read minds. He just said it's a way to read people's thoughts. You can see what's in the zeitgeist. But you're, that's why he's like clarifying. Okay. Is that we're not, we can't read thoughts, but we can say, this is what people are looking up. This is what people are curious about. Right. I remember getting an alert on my phone because I do get dictionary <laughs> alerts on my phone. And it was like, we are dangerously close for the word of the year for 2016 being fascism. Help. But he also stated that words like that, like democracy, fascism, socialism, are also kind of perennial words. They're frequently looked up. Because their words are thrown around a lot. And they're very nuanced and they're used very casually. I think those are the words that send people to reference works more than words that they completely don't know. Right. I remember I wanted to look up the word despotism. Yes. Because I wanted to know what it really meant because it was being thrown about everywhere. Autocrat is one I've looked up recently. And uh, kleptocrat. Also, so it's interesting to look at how politically charged conversations or some of the debates and some of the discussions that will send people to get back up. You know, it's like you don't want to go into a really weighty discussion unarmed. And so we want the authority of the dictionary behind us. But we've also looked at these personal rivalries as we've talked about Webster and Worcester, as we've talked about Johnson versus everyone (laughs) As we've talked about Her Majesty versus Dr. Minor. And in those definitions that people are putting out, there is definitely some bias when people are writing a definition. And that's to be expected because it's really impossible to separate language from perception. It engages you and engages your consciousness at such a heightened level compared to more abstract forms of expression, which may be interpreted without that authority behind them. There's no single set of definitions that tells you how to understand art or how to pick apart your favorite television show. But with language, we have this vested interest in having an authoritative, standardized set of definitions for the way we're interacting. Right, you know, art was one of the words they asked Minor for help with because there's so many meanings to the word. Oh my gosh, yeah, you could do a page. So as I was researching this, this week's topic, I came across this incredible essay by David Foster Wallace. And how can you not love his essays? They're the best. Just wait wait till our lobster episode. He had written what was purported to be a review 
of A Dictionary of Modern American Usage by Brian A. Garner. But it's David Foster Wallace, so it wasn't that. (laughs) It was and it wasn't so much. It turned into this manifesto. And he started talking about the way we've kind of had a political agenda for words and language for hundreds and hundreds of years. We discussed Noah Webster earlier, who was like, we can't be American without an American language, without our own reference works. And then you see the English who are like, we must chronicle the story of the great English people using our language. It's been an identifier for people forever. And on this show before, we've talked about how when languages die, cultures die, and how important it is to retain that link. And so it's obvious that as wrapped up as we are with defining identity and nationality and all of these things, that we become very charged when we talk about language. Now, he begins this with a description of the prescriptivist versus descriptivist. All right, I was paying attention. Where are you? P, prescriptive, policing. Mm-hmm. D, descriptive, diplomatic. Yes. And so he says, it is- But you the- need to wear your bandana. I am. Okay. Always. <laughs> I actually do wear a bandana a lot. <laughs> the people who are going to be interested in such a book are the people who are least going to need it, i.e., that offering counsel- on the finer points of U.S. English is preaching to the choir. The relevant choir here comprises a small percentage of American citizens who actually care about the current status of double modals, irrigative verbs. I don't know what that is. The same sorts of people who watched the story of English on PBS twice. Are you talking about yourself, Yes, Sam? I am. And read William Sapphire's column with their half-calf every Sunday. The sorts of people who feel a special blend of wincing despair and sneering superiority when they see express lane, ten items or less, or hear dialogue as a verb, or realize that the founders of the Super 8 motel chain must surely have been ignorant to the meaning of Super 8. There are a lot of epithets for people like this. Grammar Nazis, usage nerds, syntax snobs, the language police. You've been called a few of those in yes, your day. Yes, I have. The term I was raised with was snoot. The word might be slightly self-mocked, but those other terms are outright dysphemisms. A snoot can be defined as somebody who knows what a dysphemism means and doesn't mind letting you know it. And, you know, he's famous for putting footnotes in all of his writing. And he has a footnote listing all the possible acronyms. Oh, for snoot. That snoot could be. It is on all caps, always. I submit that we snoots are just about the last remaining kind of truly elitist nerd. There are, granted, plenty of nerd species in today's America. Some of these are the elitist within their own nerdy purview. But the snoots purview is inner human social life itself. You don't, after all, have to use a computer, but you cannot escape language. Language is everything and everywhere. And then he goes on to say that the snoots are the few, the proud, the appalled by everyone else. And I know the feeling. So, U.S. English is willfully colored with a democratic spirit, which can be understood in a large general context as the American democratic spirit outside of language. And when we think of that, we think of honesty, maturity, faith, and good judgment. To have a truly democratic spirit, you must combine rigor and humility, conviction and respect for the conviction of others. And this is especially hard to do when you feel that you're right about something, especially especially when you care a lot about that something. It can be really, really challenging. It can be so challenging, in fact, that on issues that you feel passionately about, it can be truly tempting to fall into some established dogmatic camp and follow that camp's line on the issue. 
and let your position harden within the camp and become inflexible and to believe that the other camp is either evil or insane and to spend your time and energy trying to shout above them. I submit then that it is indisputably easier to be dogmatic than democratic, especially about issues that are both vexed and highly charged. Now, I want to remind you that this is a review of a dictionary. <laughs> it starts as a review of a dictionary while we are kindred spirits. But I think that this is one of the most relevant writings about our current climate that we live in written from beyond the grave i mean shouted from beyond the grave you have to stop and look at how can this be so on the nose and be about something completely different how did we get from language to this really apt description of the current american climate well so give me an example okay so throughout the american english language there are debates about correctness and the author of this particular book, Brian Garner, begins his work writing openly about his process and qualifications. In the preface of his work, he introduces himself and his methodology using the word I, which in linguistic circles, linguistic, anthropological, etc. circles, we don't do. Okay, see how I just did that there? We. We. Yes, we I we. You we. You we when you write about language. Well, we, we, we in medicine. Right. Because you we, it's the, you have the power of science behind you. We do not feel that's appropriate testing. Well, it's more inclusive in language because you're saying like, you're a speaker, I'm a speaker, we're all speakers, we all know how we use language. You know, it's a, it's democratic. We're back to that again. It's including your audience. But by saying that, you are getting the power of all of those people behind you, Right, too. yes. You, you know, are invoking authority. your institution. Authority. You are invoking your definite article, the dictionary. Absolutely. And in this way, by introducing himself as an I and talking about his own personal beliefs, views, and processes, he's beginning with, trust me. Never believe anyone that says that. <laughs> no, really. No, really. That guy that told you that? Look, Never again. Listen. Trust me. <laughs> Don't believe it. Foster Wallace says, trust me is the boldest, most ambitious, and the most distinctly American oh, yes it is. of rhetorical appeals. Because it requires the rhetoric to convince us not just of his intellectual acuity or technical competence, but of his basic decency and fairness and sensitivity to the audience's own hopes and fears. And so... With that eye, with that process, with that methodology, we are getting a good look at how the sausage gets made in the prescriptivist camp, the police, the, dare I say, more conservative of the linguists and lexicographers in the world. The grammar Nazis. Yes. Lexicographical Nazis. Yes. So what's the other side like? Well, descriptivism really had its, well, it's what Foster Wallace calls the Fort Sumter of linguistic wars or usage wars when the... Webster's Third was published by Philip Gove, and he says that a dictionary should have no traffic with artificial notions of correctness or superiority. It should be descriptive and not prescriptive. Well, that's the opposite of what old Noah Webster thought. Right. But this was seized upon with glee by the waiting community who were just like, oh, you're so right slash wrong, depending on which side you fell on. This created a line in the sand and people adopted the monikers for their camps and became dogmatic. He says, somewhere along the line, though, usage dictionaries got hijacked by descriptive linguists who observe language scientifically. For a pure descriptivist, it's important. 
permissible to say that one form of language is any better than another, as long as a native speaker says it's okay, and anyone who takes a contrary stand is a dunderhead. Essentially, descriptivists and prescriptivists are approaching different problems. Descriptivists want to record language as it's actually used and perform a useful function, though their audience is generally limited to those willing to pour through vast tomes and do dry-as-dust research. Descriptivism so quickly and thoroughly took over English education in this country that just about everybody who started junior high after around 1970 has been taught to write descriptively via free writing, brainstorming, journaling, a view of writing as self-exploratory and expressive rather than as communicative, an abandonment of systematic grammar usage, semantics, rhetoric, and etymology. Did you free write? Did you journal? We had to. We didn't. Really? We were made to. Like, first 10 minutes of class, we had to free journal in English. No, never. So this is when you get that, like, liberal versus conservative ideas come into play. Right. And when you put those words anywhere near anything, somehow the camps become politicized. It's shocking. And charged. Yes. They're charged. You have to pick a side. Right. And once you pick a side, your job is to stand on your side and throw shit at the other side. (laughs) Very true. Why can't we just all get along? It's impossible to talk to either camp, personally. I'm squarely in the middle on this one, and I was regarded as a pariah because I would not pick a side. You were also a pariah because you said Harry Potter was not an outcast nerd. Yeah. There was a girl in one of my classes that tried to convince me that Harry Potter was an outcast nerd, and I was like, he was a jock. He was the star of the sports team. What the hell are you talking about? Stop projecting. got incredibly offended. In my young adults literature class, <laughs> may have stormed out. So according to the descriptive camp, there are five basic edicts which must be observed when recording language. And they are language changes constantly. Change is normal. It's okay. Everybody poops. Spoken language is language. Correctness rests on usage and all usage is relative. Sounds like it could be on an inspirational poster. As I disparage descriptivists, you should know that Steven Pinker is one, and he's also one of my heroes. Can't all be winners. So, in response to the five edicts, David Foster Wallace responds with five questions. To the first. Language changes constantly. Okay, but how much and how fast? Change is normal. Okay, same thing. Do some changes actually serve the language's overall pizzazz better than others? And how many people have to deviate from how many conventions before we say language is actually changed? 50%? 10%? All right, well, spoken language is language. This is an old claim, at least as old as Plato's Phaedrus, and it's specious. If Derrida and the infamous deconstructionists have done nothing else, they have debunked the idea that speech is language's primary instantiation. Plus, consider the weird arrogance of Gove's correctness. Okay, well, correctness rests on usage. Fine, but whose usage? This begs the whole question. What does Gove want to imply here? What Gove wants to imply here, I think, is a reversal of the traditional entailment relation between abstract rules, concrete usage. Instead of usage ideally corresponding to a rigid set of regulations, the regulations ought to correspond to the way people actually use language. Again, fine, but which people? Urban Latinos? Boston Brahmins? Rural Midwestern? Appalachian Neo-Gaelics? Last argument, all usage is relative. Huh? If this means what it seems to mean, 
then it ends up biting Gove's whole argument in the ass. It appears to imply that the correct answer to the above question, which people, is all of them. All of them. Yay. We're all inclusive. And it's easy to show why this does not stand up as a lexicographical principle. The most obvious problem with it is that not everything can go into the dictionary. Why not? Because you can't observe every last bit of every last native speaker's language behavior. And even if you could, the resultant dictionary would weigh 4 million pounds and have to be updated hourly. That's an interesting idea. It is. Like, it really is. Because this was written before the internet was in massive use. Right. Like it is today. And it's like, now, you almost could do that. Well, Urban Dictionary kind of does do that. It does. And that's a crowdsourced dictionary. And that's what you'd have to have. You combine that with Merriam-Webster... And you would have a descriptive dictionary. It's a snapshot of the language at any given moment, which is as best as we can hope to do. Then you have to ask yourself the question, is it authoritative? I think descriptivists kind of don't want it to be. You know, the authority rests with the speaker, not with the reference work. And that sort of undermines the point of a reference. Which I, I get that, though. I get that. Because language, I mean, you can just fall in either camp. Language is either... Written is the most important form, are spoken. Yeah, I have massive issues with that distinction because I think that written language is coming to mirror spoken language and its usage and tone so much more than it ever has before. And I believe that if we do not teach people how to use English correctly, we will lose its standardization and it will slowly slip into this weird morass where we're all just emojiing at each other. But I think that's begs the question what is correct english correct english is what the book says it is which book which website who who has the authority to dictate what we what we say well that's a great question who does is it someone like noah webster yes that can just (laughs) change the spelling words at a whim and and have completely biased definitions like samuel johnson or a murderer in an insane asylum he did great work. He did do great work. But no, the, the thing is, you bring up Webster. And I think Webster's interesting here because he did try to do a top-down, almost authoritarian takeover of, like, of English. And without a doubt, he was like, this is right. This is authoritative. I've done it. Yes. but This if you, needs to be the end-all, be-all. But people rejected it. and Some because of it. Because of it. it didn't all come into common usage, it's archaic and out like people do determine what language looks like through their usage over time but without something to fall back on without some sort of reference we end up passing on the story that fuck means fornication under the consent of the king and if you were to take that kind of democratic approach maybe that is what it means Oh, it means whatever it means to you in your heart. Yeah. Okay. That's great. When you write a letter to your future employer, why don't you just use your own creative spellings? We're only allowed this luxury of imagining that correctness doesn't matter because we have so many tools to help us be correct. It's true. I would die without spell check. But as users of language... We are allowed these flourishes. We are allowed to code ourselves as parts of different communities and relate to people using all different manners of speech and writing. And that's fantastic. We deserve that. But in order to code yourself as part of this correct community of people who know how to do language, 
You have to know how to do language. If you would like to be part of the speech community, you have to learn the rules. And that is where I get into that prescriptivist side. Like I'm, I want every version of English chronicled and written down exhaustively in the Annals of Linguistic Anthropology. It doesn't belong in an authoritative reference work. I think that we should have a record of these urban legends surrounding profanity. I think that we should have a record of everything. And everyone deserves to be recorded and written down. Every story is important. And language is just the medium we use to tell those stories. And it can be as unique as the subject matter. And that's not just a story. Nope. It's not just a story. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com. I like to listen.